This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the interseason for Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers Ward, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stogden. You think you can live with it? Then sequelize it! Sequelize it all! That's the plan. Eventually. <laughs> we're, we're working on it. Yeah, we've been going for five years. We're chipping away at sequelizing it all. We'll get around to it eventually. Right, Matt? Yeah, I just seen Avatar 2. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly enough, We'll probably talk about that later on the episode. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's relevant to this topic. It really is. And speaking of things that are relevant to this topic, it's Tim Matum. Bad. Bad is such a big word for being in such a small film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Oh, wow. We're starting off with, uh, how do I say it, apart from Saturday Night Energy, folks. We're recording on a Saturday night. We are here. It's cold in England. It is cold in Norwich. So be prepared for some for some usual interseason nonsense from the boys at Sequelizers. When Jack arrived, I was wearing a beanie hat inside in my living room. <laughs> I almost brought slippers to this recording because it's that cold. You live here, Matthew. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I thought there's a there's a step. There's a line there where you take slippers to another person's house, which apparently. Perfectly normal for some people, and something I've literally never done in my entire life. My wife's done it before. Yeah, I've done it when staying at people's houses, but never yeah. for a, never for a visit where I was leaving the same day. Yeah, mm. that makes sense. I mean, mm. usually you leave within twenty four hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're not talking about slippers. We're not talking about how cold it is here in Norwich. Unfortunately, for this week's episode, we're gonna dive into the directorial side of things. And not just be focusing on bad sequels, but specifically moments where seemingly great directors make a misstep. And it's gonna it's something we've kind of touched on a few times, funnily enough. Hello, M. Night Shyamalan. We talked about in the season finale last season where it's like some amazing movies. Like this was such a moment, like a historic, iconic moment in pop culture. And one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> With Shyamalan, it's tricky to say it's a misstep because it feels like sometimes the good films are almost his missteps <laughs> happy accidents there we go there we go <laughs> and i think that's kind of the angle we're going to try and go for right is like some of these directors we're going to be talking about and as we usually do with this in season we will start off with a kind of wider discussion and kind of lay out the groundwork and, and discuss a few different things 
and then we'll dive into some more specific examples. We've each picked a director we want to kind of talk about for the second half as well. So the usual kind of interseason structure when we talk about people's entire careers, both positively and very much negatively, mm. as we are here on Sequelizers. But before we get to all of that kind of stuff, Tim's opening <laughs> Dr. Pepper. Mm, crack into a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> the signature to Tim DP. Can we get some ASMR, Tim? The very directional the microphone. Taste of generation. <laughs> Isn't that Pepsi, Pepsi Max? <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> or author slash YouTuber John Green, who's apparently obsessed with Dr. Pepper, I found out the other day. All the best people are. Yeah. James Acaster. He loves Dr. Pepper. Mussolini. Mussolini <laughs> loved, invented Dr. Pepper. <laughs> His nickname was Dr. Pepper. Hang on, yeah. hang on. No outtakes. <laughs> Crack on. <laughs> Let's take a little trip down and not talk about people's missteps, but the people that have gone out of their way to make things better in other people's lives. The people lives. who fund our mistakes. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> love it. <laughs> that is, of course, the people over at patreon.com slash sequelizers. Thank you, everybody, for supporting us there. If you don't already support us, you can get access to bonus episodes, entire bonus episodes during this end season. You get outtakes. You get exclusive commentaries during the main season. We did three last season. You've got three exclusive episodes coming up on this end season as well. You, of course, also get ad-free access, early access the Friday before it goes up on the Tuesday. You can get exclusive merch. You can get discounts on merch. You can get cool avatars designed by John Scarrett. Not those kind of avatars. We've just been talking about Avatar 2. You can probably tell. I see you! <laughs> <laughs> That's what John Scarrett says every time he finishes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> but yes, you can get a lot of cool stuff if you go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. You can also get a shout out and become an executive producer like these cool, cool people have done. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Okay. Just watch me. It's so simple. You sissy Marys. Give me the playback and watch me bang it. Marcus Lindstrom. Rigging this in a wide shot, right? Of course we're getting in a fucking wide. You think I'm a dick? I said, get that fucking food. Here they come! Planes are inbound. Planes are inbound. Shit! 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 Cuck, shut the fuck! Profit! Dead! And Canis Rufus. How do you turn this on? Well, somebody misplaced the octopus motor. So when you get in there and fight with him, shake his legs around. It looks like he's killing you. Okay. Thank you, executive producers. Like we said, you make this show possible. You enjoy all the, the benefits of the outtakes and all the extra stuff and all the interseason bonus episodes and all that fun things that we get on the Patreon. And as of a few weeks ago, at the time of the, the time that this episode comes out, because we're recording this in December, but it will come out in January. Exclusive t-shirts have come out for the patrons as well. Yeah. Backstage crew, a nice, like, neon green. And, uh, yeah, they're very cool. I was wearing mine the other day. I uh, gave one in person to one of our patrons the other day. And apparently it glows in the dark, which I found out. What? Yeah. It's so green, it glows in the dark a bit. And I was like, that's cool. I would put a heavy asterisk on that. 
not guaranteed to glow in the dark. No, no, no. It's not supposed to glow in the dark. I think it's just so neon green that it kind of glows in it, the dark. It takes whatever light and bounces it into your eyeballs. Exactly. That's, that's how light works, Matthew. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Physics. Uh, I'm just. <laughs> Only one of us has a degree in it. It's true. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. And it's not Matthew. <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> but if you go to the highest tier on our Patreon, these fine folks are called the VIPs. And they are James McDowell. You know, think of it as an errand. Your errand is to run across the freeway until I yell cut. Oh, I get it. But doesn't that seem a little dangerous, though? <laughs> no, no, no. Stuart Maine. Love is a bridge built between two people. We want what exists between them to be real. My name is Hal Weidman. The film you're about to see is time over time, or is it? The details are unimportant. Simply put, the script was shit. I tossed it and instead decided to let my camera capture real life. Philip Morgan. So, action, Gus, or...? Jesus, Ben, I said I'm busy. Busy. Jonathan Firth-Clark. Cut! All right, people, reset. We're back in 15 no, minutes. I'm not doing it again. No, what do you mean you're not doing it I mean, again? I'm not doing Johnny's it again. Johnny's the last shot of the picture. Where are you going? I'm going to my trailer. No, you can't leave I'm going to get a gun. Then I'm going to shoot no, 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 myself no, 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 for being in your kill movie. Me. People kill me. I'll be back directing traffic. Johnny, don't leave me hanging up here. You're killing me, Johnny. Josh Miles. Cut! Dana. We're missing every other word. You've got to talk into the mic. Well, I can't make love to a bush. All right, all right. And Hyper Dude Man. All right, let's try this. Your line, just say it as I said. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would the tutorial so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said it. Y- yes. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Thank you, VIPs. Your support makes this show possible, makes it free for everyone else on all the usual podcast services around the world, makes all the plans we've got for 2023 possible, all our new equipment that will be installing and irritating everyone with in the coming months <laughs> someday jack will get his fart button <laughs> i have it i just haven't programmed it yet i have the button just not the fart you've just got you've just not selected the right fart that's true i, I need to carefully select the tone and nuance of the fart. why are we talk about jack's belly button <laughs> <laughs> that's not the fart button <laughs> But we'll just hook my belly button directly into the, the mixer. Yeah, the Pandora. Podcast. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> All related to Avatar. <laughs> but yes, thank you, executive producers. Thank you, VIPs. Thank you, everyone on patreon.com slash sequelizers. As I said, you make this show possible. You make everything we do possible. And yeah, we've got big, big plans for 2023. So mm. stay tuned, everybody. It's very exciting. We've got big plans through the end season, which is another couple of months or so. And then we're getting into requalizers for season 12, which is very exciting. Yep. I've already started planning some things, which is very unlike me, and I'm excited. Yeah. 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 I haven't, which is very much like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm See? chomping at the bit yes. to get to some of that. Of course you are. Um, 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 um. <laughs> so, directors, 
Yes, let's talk about some directors, shall we? It's kind of, like I said, we'll kind of cover a few different examples and stuff like that, but we'll save some specific stuff and some career-defining moments mm. for the second half. But yeah, I guess, should we talk about how directors come to have these kind of missteps and, and that kind of journey through a person's yeah, career I, as a director yourself, oh, Matthew? Oh, yes. Well, I, I, I'd like to start. Oh! oh if I may. Go ahead. Hello, I, not director Tim. Please take <laughs> it away. I think that there is definitely uh, a sort of uh, several established narratives uh, that the press and people uh, on social media and stuff like to play into when it comes to just the arcs of people's careers and especially when that comes to creative people. And so you have the kind of arc of, oh, well, people... Some people start out and they have a few little like rocky things, but they show potential and then they get the right whatever, the right script, the right property. They find an actor that they work really well with and they produce like a masterpiece and then they have a really strong run of things. And then it starts to peter off and maybe they don't have the creative fire that they once did and they start to drift apart or they make some big cost. Like the, the standard thing is you you start out you learn your craft, you maybe hit your heights, then you kind of start to maybe lose the thread of like, or you're just not the hip young thing anymore, <laughs> and you carry on producing work that people kind of consider solid, but not as exciting as your earlier stuff, and then you kind of fade away. And that is generally seen as the pattern for what most filmmakers go through. And then, of course, there are people who bark that trend. There are people who come out of the gate with an incredibly strong first film and are seen as these revolutionary talents. And then it often becomes a question of keeping up with those high expectations. And you have the sophomore slump that a lot of people, musicians have because... The difficult second album classic yes, kind of cliche there. You have, uh, you have your whole life to work on your first album and six months to work on your second yep. album. Um, you know, it's it's that same kind of mindset of, you know, people can work on a first film and be developing that idea for ages and then if they hit it big then there's pressure and there's expectations and they have to go bigger for the next thing and they have all these other voices now impacting them and all that kind of stuff you also have people who just chug along at a very standard level and never break out and never do anything particularly extraordinary but they just the old safe pair of hands and not even at the mm. ron howard level <laughs> no, no, no the people you can't name you the people the directors you literally can't name yeah that guy who did that thing on the, yeah. love their films. The, the woman who did um yeah oh she did that film yeah it was all right you know that one yeah the people who just chug along and don't make anything that really ever captures the public imagination and there are various other arcs out there that the and 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 the thing is is that these are all narratives that we like to apply to people's lives and people's work which even though they are working in narrative life itself actually does not fit a narrative and so it's very it, we like to think of these things as that's how a director's career goes but to be honest a director's career can go anywhere they can have a great film followed by a terrible film followed by a great film you know we we people love to point to things where it's like oh, their ego got ahead of them and they yeah, made this yeah. huge, you know, they sunk all their money into this thing and then it bombed and it was terrible and they were never the same again <laughs> and they spent the rest of their life in debt and all this kind of stuff. And those happen because, of course, they do. But you also have people who 
don't sink a load of money into they make a terrible film that loses them a bunch of money but no one's ever heard of it because it's not a notorious bomb or they sink a load of money into a thing and it's a great success but then they just kind of piddle along for the rest of their life doing mediocre stuff and everybody goes what happened to that person they made that amazing fit like huge blockbuster and then this thing they did was that thing and it was fine it was just like this kind of regular drama and then they did that weird historical film and then the blah 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 and and not every career has a pattern that you can go oh, oh that makes sense because life doesn't make sense and you never know what other factors are at play yeah definitely i think the fact that we have such a spotlight on directors is such a key part of that as well because i don't know maybe you could matt being so knowledgeable about specific things in movies but like could you do the same thing for like one editor's career or something like that yeah because the director is so often seen as whether that's true or not because this is often not true on certain projects where as the visionary behind the whole project Mm. and the driving force or they might have even written the screenplay and done a bunch of the casting, especially in the early career, as you were saying there, Tim, where you get that initial fire of spark of creativity. Mm. And I've been working on this screenplay for 25 years and blah, blah, blah. And you get that classic cliched start. But then you do get this with actors in the same way. But I think we see directors in a, in a different kind of spotlight because of the way that they are so highlighted in the industry, whether that's awards and stuff like that, they're so like a a direct representation of that film. You have like, oh, let's have this huge ensemble cast. Yeah, but it's a Tarantino movie or Mm. it's a Christopher Nolan movie or it's a, you know, a Martin Scorsese movie, whatever it is. And some people have such creative stamps on their work. It's like, oh, you can just tell it's, a particular director's work just by glancing at the poster or hearing the soundtrack or whatever it is. And the reason we then try and like, like you said, kind of put them in different boxes of like, oh yeah, that was the 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 second film flop and then the resurgence. And then, oh, we've gotten into this habit with actors recently of like the, with the reconnaissance and the, <laughs> the I can't remember the, the Keanu, Keanuissance or whatever yeah. that was. Where they're like, oh, they did some great stuff mm. and they disappeared for 15 years. Oh, John Wick's a thing. And like mm. Brendan Fraser's trying to do that at the moment and stuff like that. Mm. You get these similar kind of patterns emerge and then you just start. The Fraser action. Thank you. Thank you. You then start. Oh, that's a connotation right there. <laughs> <laughs> you then start sort of like almost pigeonholing certain people in certain career paths. And especially if they have like associated with other directors throughout their careers mm. or a particular actor they work with the whole time like oh yeah samuel l jackson's really gone off the boil and like yeah so is this guy as well because he always works with him and and that kind of thing i think it's really interesting the the three examples we'll get onto later i think are really interesting and very different in their mm. careers and the past that they've gone through that is something we see so often is that like you said you get that amazing moment or two or three but we're all fucking human. We're all going to make a mistake. And even, and this, this haunts me, the fact that I work on projects at work that are like a few thousand pounds. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so much money. <laughs> I can't imagine being like, I'm responsible for $150 million. And like that guy's career and that woman's career and that person's career, like, oh God, that's terrifying. And the fact that we just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, they, they fucked it up. They'll be fine. Some people just retire and never come back. Like, yeah. I made a I made a film so bad or I had such a bad experience. Mm. We talk about studio involvement mm. so much on this show, like oh god, I couldn't stand working in that studio and I've just 
given up. I'm going to go be a painter because fuck you mm. all. <laughs> or some people make one film and it's great and they never make yeah, another one. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it there's because there's definite comparisons that you can make to actors and their careers, but there's also a more understanding amongst both people who are very literate in film and also the general public, I think, the actors are not solely responsible for the films that they're in. And, you know, you can look at, take someone like Jennifer Lawrence, who, like, for three or four years was, like, the biggest actress in the world, but also made some bad films in that time. But there's the understanding of, like, well, she, you know, obviously she auditions for films or gets picked by directors who then request her and perhaps she has you know she gets to a certain level where she gets to pick her roles and say like i want to do this but unless she is involved in actually producing which is obviously what a lot of actors do move into they're not steering the ship um and the rest of the film is not their responsibility they're responsible for really their performance and with directors we see them as a lot more responsible for the entire product yeah unless you and if someone's really unhappy with the thing it often then becomes that through whatever means publicists or whatever you then get that narrative of the studio versus the director yes definitely and then it becomes about a director almost saying like hey this film is shit but i don't want that ton i don't I don't want to take responsibility for it, <laughs> basically, which could be fair. Maybe there's some really hardworking studio people trying to make a good film and a director who keeps fucking it up, but the director <laughs> has a really good publicist and just keeps getting blamed on studio yeah, executives. Yeah. Who knows? But at the end of the day, like unless that narrative exists for a particular film, we generally look to the director as the person responsible for the overall quality of it. Yeah, that's very true. Um... I want to kind of reiterate what you said. That's, cause the, the opening thing you said from the start of this uh, episode, Tim, is very much it. Um, there are narratives that are out there about uh, directors and who's responsible for what and the little journeys we all go on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in truth, as much as we will say, oh my God, Shyamalan's going, fuck this one. And, oh, well, <laughs> Classic Shyamalan. Yeah, we'll, we'll, right, we'll, in my fix, we'll bring in this director and mm. that'll change everything. And it's mm. like... It rewrites the sequelizer's timeline. Matthew, <laughs> I've told you this so many times. Yeah. But Climbing we, our DeLorean. <laughs> we've destroyed Godzilla 98 yeah. and now I'm happy. That's true. Um, that being said, that is also a bit of an illusion. That is also a bit of a... Um, a fantasy we tell each other. And like, well, you know, if I put Villeneuve in it, he'll be good. Why would he be good? Because everything he's done is good. It's like, I mean, that feels accurate at this point in time. It's almost the opposite of what you tell me so many times as the mm-hmm. every actor has the role for them. The one role, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you could just happen to stumble in. So far, but Villeneuve has not set a bad foot. Not yet. Not set a foot wrong. However, you stick him on the wrong thing and it just turns out that'll be the opposite of that and <laughs> yeah. be... The thing that Villeneuve cannot do or can't, just yeah. doesn't work with. And this is where the illusion of choice comes in. Yeah, And this, yeah. this is the key point here. I want to sort of drill down because this is, this is my underpinning thing, both from my own personal experience, but also as someone who's, you know, uh, studied and witnessed this, this, this medium for so long. Uh, it's a job. <laughs> I hate <laughs> to say that because it's art and it's subjective and it's, it's, it's important, it's impactful. But it's a job. And mm. for a lot of people, it's 
just a job. And I've been on big film sets, major film studio sets, and you get the kind of people like, we're making fucking movies here, baby. <laughs> and people are like, I don't give a fuck what we're doing. I'm waiting until the end of this contract, get my thing paid, then I'm on the next one. Mm. And it doesn't matter what it is. They don't watch films. They don't care. Mm. They just, they do their role. They do and it very well. The, and those people exist at every level yep. of the filmmaking 100%. industry. That could be your key grip or, mm -hmm. you know, or some special effects guy mm -hmm, working mm -hmm. in a studio halfway around the world or mm -hmm. gal, um, you know, who's just like, I'm just doing it for the paycheck. Could also be the executive producer who's like, I don't care what the film's about. I just want the money. <laughs> and this is the key thing, because the illusion of choice we have is that that's why we fixate on certain personality of director. You don't often see, when the press junket goes out, when you have like the Jimmy Kimmel interviews and the Jimmy Fallon and the Graham Norton over here. All the Jimmies. All the Jimmies. Mm. Jimmy, Jimmy Corden. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Johns. Yeah, yeah. When you have all these people. Jim Jarmusch. In, all these people being interviewed, it's actors. Yeah, because they're the charming mm. ones who can yeah, do yeah, these yeah. breakups. They're it's, the ones people care about. That's for the most absolutely part. true. No one gives a fuck about the writer has to say. Mm. You know, they've crafted the story, can actually answer the questions about the film. Yeah. Nobody cares about the editor to say, even though they crafted it to make it look the way it is. Yeah. Nobody gives a fuck about most directors unless they are also an actor. Mm. Uh, you get a handful of personality directors like, oh, mm. everyone wants to speak to Christopher Nolan. He gets yeah. interviewed yeah. and shit. Like I said, Tarantino, Nolan, Scorsese, Precisely. people that mm. make themselves known in and that way. Yeah. yeah, they become this personality. But the truth is, in that it's just a job mindset, as much as I don't want to, you know, demystify it too much. If I was to look back over you, dear listener, your CV, curriculum vitae, if you will, uh, your, resume. Your, your resume, yeah, and say, why did you do that job? What do you mean? Mm. That's beneath you. Why did what you were you that? trying to say with that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I was trying to get paid and they yeah. happened to give me a job because no one else at the time and I trained to do this other. Oh, is that what you got the training to do this other thing you actually mm. wanted to do? Yeah, I wanted to do this. But I was stuck in this for three years. Why is that? Because that's how life works, motherfucker. Fuck you. Know. It's like, I think this reflects badly on you. It's like, how fucking dare you? <laughs> um, and that's always something I've, I've, I have a quote from Guillermo del Toro, for example, which when he was saying like, oh, I really brought your, your, your historical stuff like The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. I'm not really a big fan of the other stuff like Blade and stuff. He said, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds like Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, it's, it's the whole, I only make one movie. Yeah. It's the movie I want to make. And I'm like, I love that so much because it's still the different styles. But the illusion of choice is that you get to pick these things. And if you're a very small independent, you're doing whatever you can to try and get something done from favors and money and, you know, the classic early Rodriguez, early Kevin Smith, early Linklater, that kind of shit. Do you know? have a kill time. Not me, yeah. <laughs> um, every independent, every, every level. Then you get the studio-based stuff. And this is the thing I didn't... It blew my mind as a kid. I was like, best director, best editor, best this, best that, so on and so forth. Best picture. I'm like, why doesn't the director pick up the best picture? Mm. Yeah, The producer does. There's no best producer <laughs> no. because you get the best picture Oscar because you did it. And that's always like when, when La La Land did not win and the producer snatched the card off Warren Beatty and hands the fucking thing out there. I was like, oh, he is an angry ass producer. Like, that's a producer. Yeah, um, Not every producer, obviously. and Just so, most of them. Just a lot of them, yeah. But they will find the director it's not like mm. the director's hunting for these certain jobs. I mean, certain personalities are. Certain ones mm. are hunting for these roles. But the producer's like, I know a guy. I know a face. We'll get mm. this one. Yeah, we'll get them involved. Because the studio says, we've paid for this script. Who's going to direct it? Mm. And a lot of the time we talk about 
big personalities who write their own stuff and bring it to the studio and say, listen here, I've done this. Mm. I want this. And they're like, uh, yeah, you can have that. Thank you. If you do this, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, for and, fuck's sake. And even for a director like David Lynch, yep. who is so idiosyncratic in his vision of the world and yep. everything like that, the fact that he has a long and storied career is down to him at a certain point finding producers or producers seeing his stuff and going, I click with this enough that I think I can sell it to other people. Absolutely. And there are, not to disparage his talents because he's an incredibly talented director, Mm -hmm. but there are a dozen other David Lynch's out there producing stuff that's equally as incomprehensible to most people Mm -hmm. who just have never had a producer look at it and go, yeah, actually, I can do something with this. Tim, that's absolutely it. Because the, 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 this is what YouTube showed us. YouTube revealed there are there is a an abundance of talent. There is an oversaturation of talent, and you can't give them all twenty million dollars. Apparently, yeah, <laughs> apparently. Um, and and it's it's really frustrating because the potential is there. There's more potential than you would see in other people's work to get them there in the first place. Mm. Um, and that's where you get certain directors who are always like, I'm going to send the lift back down or, or, or send the ladder down, as it were, mm. which is Martin Scorsese. Because mm. he's come up from um, hand-making these things. Again, the 70s was very much a time of we're going to have the studio system is, is blocking off too many amazing new talents. So we're going to get this new wave of young kids. You've got Coppola and De Palma and Scorsese and Lucas and Spielberg and blah, 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 blah. And the 90s had a similar wave of these things with Tarantino and, and um, mm. Linklater. And it's often also back. to do with technology as well. It's culture and technology happening to line up. I will That's talk true. about technology a lot in the second half with one of my Oh, things. yes. Yes. <laughs> good, yeah, good point. Um, you're right. It is, it's, it's, it's a barrier and a gateway. Mm. But once you get past that, say, oh, 16 millimeters are really easy to buy now, or digital cameras are really easy to get hold of. Yeah. Michael Mann doing collateral saying, see? Yeah, it can um, look good. Yeah, it's, you can do this. It's, it's going to cost you some money, but you could do it. And then it becomes a case of, well, I can do this thing. And um, you end up with a situation where it's, it's about who's got the exposure, who's got the talent, who's going to be able to get you in the door, and then staying there at all costs. Mm. And once you've got one or two of these things, you become a reliable name. And you're like, yeah, I know that guy. They'll stay around. It's fine. Mm. Um, and it is very frustrating um, because you will have someone like David Lynch, for example, who's insanely talented, incredibly good at what he does. Mm. Uh, and then you have a bunch of fuck-ups, but they've got good friends. Yeah. Mm. And they're constantly like, how are you still working, you piece of shit? Yeah. It's like, because they come in and they get their bills in on time. Yeah. That's enough for us. It's, yeah. not a, it's not a rogue element we don't know about. It'll do. Like, yeah. Ugh. There's a brilliant quote from Neil Gaiman about working as a professional like creative. And you have to tick two out of three boxes and there's like a Venn diagram of like, the perfect creative person. You either need to be really nice to work with, make incredible work, or be on time and do produce things on time yeah. without too much bollocks and hassle. If you're nice and you make great work, people put up with you being late and being a pain in the ass. Yeah. If you're on time and you make great work, people will deal with you being an arsehole. Yeah. <laughs> and and vice versa. Yeah, the yeah, combination yeah. of those two, that's always stuck yeah. with me since I heard that interview with no, Jamie. I like yeah. that. And if you're nice and on time, people don't care if it's not the greatest thing in the world. They so enjoy exactly. doing it. Yeah. 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 So a pair of hands, etc. Yeah. And and that has so stuck with me over the years. And I've just used that little template to be like, 
Mm, if that makes sense for you, <laughs> notorious <laughs> asshole one. box office one. ping ping yeah, ping. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's it's a fascinating thing to see. Like, obviously, we're outside of the industry as a whole, and we've we've each had our own little sneak peeks inside and mm. and all that kind of stuff. I know people who have worked on certain things and all that kind of stuff. But like we're saying, it, it's such a weird thing to have this whole oh we've got a script and now I guess um oh yeah should we call we call this guy to direct this like yeah sure oh maybe we'll try a female director this time like okay sure you get the weird kind of like almost tokenism kind of stuff that happens so often this like studio seeming to try to do the right thing in certain ways and then like ah you just want to make money there's a market for that sort of thing mm. bring a woman in we'll make money mm. from women it's like oh, for fuck's and sake they'll also go to the roller decks they have which has the same fucking names every time and they'll exactly. say exactly which women do we know it's like you only know three yeah it's like, mm. but but there aren't any it's yeah like, yeah there are you aren't looking they're exactly. literally dying to get an industry well we don't that sounds like a lot of effort yeah. yeah i don't know them so what do i you know yeah, yeah. and it you you can see it in everyone's worked in jobs where you know i say everyone most people have worked in jobs where you have a boss for example who's like doling mm. out work for the day or whatever and they're like oh I'll give this job to that person. I know it will get done. Yeah. Yeah. This person, oh, I, I guess, yeah, you go do that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. And Hollywood is that, but just on a l- much larger scale. Absolutely. You know, and the, some of those, you know, some of those bosses are doing the best that they can and they're trying to make work a meritocracy. And some of them are just lazy and they're just, they have favorites or they have, or they just don't have the imagination to think outside the box and, yeah. and say, Oh, I don't know what this person's capable of. Maybe I'll try them out on this job. They just go, "Well, I know this person can do it, so I'll just keep giving it to them." Yeah. And that way people don't get to grow or whatever, but, mm. you know. But yeah, it it it, it clogs the drain effectively. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we can't get anything flowing through. Why? Cuz Ridley Scott's in the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like but yeah, it's like, oh, can we just move him." Then he makes a good film I'm like, "God damn it." Um, but it's interesting cuz you're right. That uh, that's why I brought Martin Scorsese. But he tends to do this thing now, where he's of the age where he is a very much a strong producing individual. Brad Pitt does the same thing. Where he's like, right, I'm going to give somebody a smaller creative money. Spielberg does it quite a lot, actually, mm. to his detriment sometimes. Um, so this Trevorrow guy looks like a great fun time. Yeah. I'll give him a Jurassic Park. Like, don't do that. Yeah. Give him room to do his own stuff. Breathe a bit. No, 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 no. IPs. So yeah, to come back to that, um, the kind of classic cliche journey, we had that thing like to the through the two thousands, two thousand tens. Yes, where it was like, oh, you made one independent film. Here's one of the biggest intellectual properties in the world. Mm. Have three hundred million dollars. Like, you know, I've only dealt with five million dollars before, right? My entire team was a dozen of them, and half of them I went to school with. Mm. Now it's here's an entire Warner Brothers production. Here's an entire Disney production. Like, um. Okay, thanks. Uh, shit. And it's well-meaning because what you end up having is certain producers and studio heads saying, don't worry, that's exactly what happened to me, George, and Francis. Mm. It's like, well, you know, George did THX and no one gave a fuck and it was a small mm. thing and then he did yeah. a Star Wars. And it's mm. like, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I, I did a small thing and then I did Jaws. Mm. It's like, again, I yeah. don't think that's what it... And it's frustrating because there's a well-meaning intention behind it. Yeah. So, for example, um, Mark, uh, uh, Ben Wheatley... It sounds like I'm being a wanker, but whatever. Ben Wheatley was telling me, um, I was doing a and a with him, uh, about Free Fire, which mm. he was promoting at the time. And he said Martin Scorsese will do a thing where he'll just, you know, 
jet around doing whatever Martin Scorsese fucking does. <laughs> and then he'll just say, right, I'll put on some stuff. What's in the area? Mm. And I think he watched Kill List. Oh, nice. Which again, for those who don't know Ben Wheatley's career, lots of independent, interesting movies. Mm. That's one of his earlier, more most, you know, mm. yeah. uh, low budget sort of films. Mm. Loved it and said, let's get in touch with this guy. And that's how Free Fire and happened. And when you're Martin Scorsese, you get in touch with that. Mm. You have all the power in the world to be able yeah. to just pull yeah. that string. And again, it's that who you know, who you know, who you know. Get in touch with the people. Done. And it's like, wait, who's, who's calling? Like, yeah, I think it's Martin Scorsese's mm. like PA. What? Yeah. Is that... Hold on, what? Yeah, I don't have people, so you're just calling like yeah. my wife. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 that's kind of how these things tend to work. It, and unless you, you know, it, it, you you give the chance for it to grow and think, oh, what, what are you watching now? What are you doing mm. now? It's the fr- it's the willingness to say, I will watch something different. It's why really smart fucking producers will go to film festivals, and like I mean, like small independent festivals mm. go, well, that's got some fucking potential. Mm. Yeah, and that's where you hear names of like, oh, this so and so's come out of nowhere. Who's that then? It's like, oh, it's Robert Eggers or something. Like, mm. Who the fuck is Robert Eggers? Another example of a very strong personality as a, as a, as a craftsman, shall we say, who has stayed in his middle budget, short budget lane so far. Yep. Mm. So he hasn't gone, ah! And he's always made the films with the control he has. Mm. Because as much as we have the illusion of choice of what you get to do, because it's not your money you're spending, it's someone else's money. Mm-hmm. So you're still beholden to somebody. You're like, oh, I'll make these changes. No, you have to be charming enough to let them make those, let you yeah. make those changes. That's when we bring on a studio, like when we bring on a director in our fi- fixes and pitches and stuff. We're saying we believe this personality will have the connections and the uh, the charm, the charisma to get this over the line mm. in the way it needs to be done. Mm. And sometimes that's why we don't say like, oh, this is someone who's the you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to bring in Villeneuve. Oh, great! In the early nineties, like. Uh, mm, wait, what, what, what? Yeah. It's like, well, he's not established at this point. It's like, then you ain't getting him. Mm. That's very unlikely because mm. he doesn't have that tug. It's very rare that we, when we're doing sequelizers, I know this is all sequelizers, but when we're sequelizing, hello, Tim, welcome to the, the main, the main season. Yeah, yeah. It's very rare that we'll often go, oh, this is an actor, but I'm getting them very early in their yeah, career. Yeah, there it is. There it <laughs> we is. do that a we, lot. We don't do that with directors for no. the most part no. because it's very. It do, it does happen, and we you know there is the the Trevor Hour of it all and all those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But it's very, especially nowadays, it feels like it's very hard to accelerate that path super quick. Yes, just because of how entrenched the money is in the in the Hollywood, mm. you know, and Hollywood has has always been risk averse and yeah, is only definitely. becoming more so. Yeah, when we did um. Creature of the Black Lagoon, mm. one of the oldest pictures, and the old rather than I know that um, back in the day, Stuart and Alec did a, it's an eighties sequel. It's yeah. years later, and I was like, no, nah, we're going to do a fifties sequel, and by doing that, suddenly had to tie my hands in a very different way. It's like, right, you need a Universal director then. So what do you mean? It was Contract, the, it was the era, of, yeah. era of the studio. So yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in the same way now, if we're doing sequelizers in twenty thirty years time. And then, or an equivalent. God forbid. Um, you're like, okay, I want to get Henry Cavill. Uh, uh, da, 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 da. What year is this? <laughs> it's like, well, mm-mm. or I want to get Chris Evans. Like, ah, yeah, you ain't getting him in 2015, mate. Yeah, yeah. he's locked the fuck in. Yeah. What's this for? What's oh, my superhero film? He's no, in the middle no, no, of no, his, no, no. Even yeah. middle of his nine picture Disney deal. Yeah. yeah. Mm, so yeah. it's it's the same thing with directors. Like, I want to get um, I, again, just any. I, I, I want to get uh, Park Chan Wook. Like, great, brilliant idea. When? 
2001. No, no, <laughs> unless you're going, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but if he hasn't done Old Boy yet, very you don't few American know who he is. studios are going to yeah. support him on mm, this yeah. fucking Spider-Man sequel you want to do or whatever. <laughs> it's like, I get it, but maybe. Spider-Man versus Blade, directed by Park Channel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think, it, yeah, it's really interesting you brought that up, Tim, like coming back round to us here on Sequelizers and our role as this weird producer, casting director, writer, mashup thing, that what, our weird fantasy yeah. world that we create. Physical embodiment of a studio. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. And we have this weird thing where we have the advantage of foresight, right? And you're totally right. We will go like, okay, we're getting Michael B. Jordan, but like young Michael B. Jordan, because we know he's great. We've seen Fruitvale Station. Fresh We've off seen the wire. Of, right? Yeah, exactly. He was great in the wire. I was like, right, but he was also 12 in the wire. So I'm like, yeah, but it'll be great. It'll be fine. And we have the advantage of coming in and knowing what they will do in the future and all that kind of stuff. And then, as you said, them at a perfect example with the creature episode was like trying to slot it in around stuff and like, again, coming back around to the topic of the episode, like, trying to then correct certain people's career mis- what we perceive as their career mistakes or missteps and again it's all subjective and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. like the perfect example last week we did a stargate sequel and you went up oh, right i'm doing i'm sticking with emmerich spoilers for last week go and listen to last week mm-hmm. matt stuck with roland emmerich and was like i'm doing a 1998 and i went oh you hear it on the episode i literally go oh <laughs> That means no Godzilla, and I fucking hate that movie. Despite you being a somewhat defender of that film, uh, yeah, yeah. you were like, mm? uh, uh. someone else can direct it. Exactly. Mm, yeah. The studio will get somebody because it's not Emmerich's baby. Spot on. Exactly. Whereas Stargate is such a Emmerich involved thing. He co wrote it, he co developed it. Like, he was such a, as we were just saying, like, the director is such a representation and a figurehead of this project. Mm. If you're doing Stargate, may as well be Roland Emmerich if you're doing it in 1998. I didn't do that. I did it in 97. Are you aware of that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's this interesting thing where with our power of foresight and going back and like almost trying to course correct people's careers. And that's why I love this. And I know you hate it, Matthew. The hypothetical sequelizers timeline of our weird, like perfect, <laughs> perfect world where we craft- just face palmed. Fucking he double face opened the arc and looked straight inside my face. <laughs> melted. That makes you a Nazi. And oh, no, <laughs> it don't no. Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. With us course correcting, it's like a like a weird going back and using an eraser throughout the eras of Hollywood and being like, yeah, that one didn't happen. We got rid of that one. Uh, he was about to make a bad film. She was about to be in that bad film. So I'm going to recast her. She's now in my movie, which is much better. And that director is no longer working on that movie, so they're not available to make that shit. Is it the and TVA it... from Loki? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. The the time like correctional yes. people where they go around and make sure the timelines are running smoothly. And we're kind of doing the opposite of that. Like, so if Emmerich doesn't do Godzilla, does that change his entire career? And it's the whole butterfly effect thing, of course, right? Absolutely. Like, oh right. Well, Shit, okay, so if, if we did Blade and Spider-Man crossover as the third Spider-Man movie, like, what the fuck would that matter? Where does, like, does the MCU happen? Is Tobey Maguire still, do we get a Spider-Man 4? Is there next generation of Blade? Like, how does this all, does the amazing Spider-Man ever happen? Does Andrew Garfield's career change? Oh, fuck, oh my God, oh, that's, that's such a massive change. It's a brain melt, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. brain melting stuff. And if, if you go back in time, oh my God, I can't believe you fucking Nazi. Uh-oh. Um, so, 
as a uh, as a player of Command and Conquer Red Alert, oh. um, the moon. I, <laughs> I'm always consciously aware that the, I love the story of Red Alert, the original game, that um, or the original sequel, I should say, where it's like uh, Einstein, very well meaning, goes, "I'm gonna go back and kill Hitler." It's like, okay, cool. No one's gonna oppose that shit. Go for it. Yep. Ah, and he speaks beside the symposium and shakes his hand or whatever. Um, as he gets out of military hospital and he dies and goes, now the world's a better place. It's like, well, Stalin's still around. It's like, also, oh shit, power vacuums. Yeah, like, like, these works. things sort of fall into place. So, for example, it's like if we just went back in time to punch Brett Ratner in the face, uh, hit me up, sign me up, <laughs> sign me up. I don't have a problem with that. Sign me up. No one was leaping in there to interrupt. <laughs> no, I know. I was like, yeah. <laughs> we, we were just vigorous nodding, yeah, from us yeah, and the just listeners. Keep doing it. Just sharpening my crowbar. We'll just take. <laughs> we'll just take it in turns. We're lining up for the time machine. <laughs> yeah. This is the punch for Brett Ratner box. Right? <laughs> yes, please, yeah. mate. It's like, oh, do you know who'd be good for this? We just burst of a studio. <laughs> it's like it's seeming uh, straight out of Compton. Like, where's my money? <laughs> just off. No Ratner. Um, <laughs> But we'd be doing it for so many fucking people. We'd be yeah. destroying the industry. But the point is that there will always be... It's like, oh, great. Emmerich's not on Godzilla anymore. Who'd you get? Michael Bay. Ah! Fuck! <laughs> and now there's five of these things and they're equally shit every time. It's like, shit! Yeah. What does that also mean? It means you don't get Armageddon. Oh, it's one of the better ones! <laughs> ah, shit! Is that, is that a sacrifice you're willing to make to then course correct a bunch of the other stuff? And then yeah. how does that change their career? And oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, a point I want to just sort of really drill down to as well because again this is this is a bit of um something we can all relate to in this room uh and very much me as a director no matter what project you're working on whether you're an actor grip director writer whatever it happens to be nobody sets out to make a bad movie and in truth except those mockbuster people fuck them in the mouth (laughs) no they set out to make a cheap movie that's good yes they still want regardless of quality yeah Yeah. they think they know their demographic and they think they want to what they want it to be successful yes and they keep i I was in a sorry i was in a charity shop earlier on with my wife and pointed out the starving games to her and i was like god that was a thing wasn't it meet the spartans and the the, the spoof movie thing vampires suck exactly and that was that that is the perfect example of like, did you set out to make a bad movie? Because I can't imagine this ever being good. I know they don't, but it's just so bad that I can't it, it, possibly imagine. It's the, is there a world where Starving Games is even competent? Well, no, it's, it's, it's the grading metric of what you gauge your success on. Mm. And theirs is, we made enough money back to justify making another one of these pieces of shit. Which we're like, Because eh. we, we spent $15,000 on it and we made $25,000. Yeah. <laughs> bunch, of, bunch of dickheads went, oh, that'd be funny. I'll yeah. watch that. It's like, you bastards. Um, but nobody knows they're making a bad movie. And more importantly, when you're in it, it's hard to tell if you're making something good or bad. Now, two prime examples of that is there are so many behind the scenes interviews with people on really shitty movies who are quite excited about it. Because in the moment, you, you trust everyone around you yeah. that it's going to be good. And it doesn't work out for multiple reasons. You go, oh, fuck. Um, the other side of that is when you're making a fucking amazing movie, but because you're either not entirely trusting the director or you don't get it yourself or you feel your role is a bit diminished or you've got a bit mm. cult of personality. Like, well, if I don't understand it, no one will. Like, mm. thing. You end up with like, oh, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be fucking all. I can, t- I can tell right now. Mm. It's a waste of my time. That being Mad Max. I was about to Mad say, Max, everyone, everyone brings up no, Tom Hardy. Nobody was... except George Miller had a fun time on the Mad Max Fury 100%. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that, even then, is a kind of miracle that even worked out the way it did, because it could have easily, not even easily, it should have derailed. It should have, yeah. yeah. Um, and there are so many examples of that happening across the industry 
for so many releases. Um, and then we talk about consistency. Mm-hmm. It's the directors that just consistently give you good, bad, or otherwise. It's what then surprises you. Like, oh my God, a shit director made a good film. Oh my God, that's amazing. And then are they going to go back to the... Oh, no, no, there it is. Um, <laughs> and similarly with good directors, the pressure that mounts. Yeah. Mm. That Villeneuve... I mean, I remember writing the review for... I think it was probably Interstellar. Yeah. I said, I think we got there now. At the bit where it's like... And it was like, want to get it out of the way. Mm. Give us a shit film so you can get back to being good. I remember you saying that about Nolan. Like, there's that particular... And like you said, when you, you make two, and then three, really good. And then five, really good. And you're like, okay. Again, going back to your narrative theory earlier, Tim, like, everyone wants to be then... We as the public want to slot these people and their careers, and mm. that's not how human lives work. No. But like, oh, they're gonna fuck up eventually. Oh, Something's gonna go wrong. It was Dark Knight Rises? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course it was Dark Knight. There Rises. it is. We yeah. fixed it. I fixed it. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, there's that moment where like you almost want to get it out of the way early so you can kind of get that pressure off. And yeah, if you're ten, like ten films in, and like say twenty five years into your career, that's or Russian it is, roulette. And yeah. it's like, what are you doing? It's going to go on oh, some point. Yeah. <laughs> part of me, even though it's a film that I really like and I don't want to reopen this can of worms, part of me is almost glad that The Last Jedi got the reaction it did mm. because it means Ryan Johnson isn't necessarily... Locked into that trilogy of Star yeah. Wars films he was supposed to be making or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. And go, go, gets to go off and make stuff like Knives Out and, you know, obviously he's now locked into those because those <laughs> turned out to be a success. <laughs> Damn it! But um, we're all okay but, with that for now. Yeah. Um, and I think that that leads to another point, which is that a good director and a talented person or, or even not even necessarily a talented person, even just a person with the right attitude and a hard worker, a lucky fucker, um, will come, even if they have a misstep, will learn something from it. And so simply wishing again, going back to the, the time travel kind of hypothesis, simply wishing those out of existence could be really bad for that filmmaker Very true. because sometimes you need to have a stumble or you need to try something outside of your wheelhouse and you go okay i'm used to making mid-budget action films but i want to i i actually have this really heartfelt story about grief that i want to make mm. and i'm and i'm gonna try and make this really kind of like down-to-earth earnest film about it and then people kind of go, whoa, what was that all about? You, that's... Just, you kind of described my pick from later, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a really weird weird pick for them. Mm. You know, I mean, we, we talked about Emmerich. Emmerich making Anonymous. You weird. Know, yeah. And yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And clearly, like, you don't make that film unless, I mean, obviously some people just do it for the money. Mm. But for most people, especially if you're switching gears like that, which yeah. is often where we talk about missteps, it's because you want to try something different. Yeah, and conscious it's decision with it, right? It's because yeah. maybe in not necessarily a personal story that you want to tell, but it's it's a it's a muscle you want to stretch. And in sometimes you go, oh, okay, that muscle ain't ready. You mm. know, I need to work on some other stuff. Sometimes you need to do you, some stretches. Sometimes you go, okay, that didn't work, but these little bits of it did, and they will now inform when I go back. You know, and maybe this earnest drama mm-hmm. didn't quite work but i can take the tools that i learned from it and now the emotional stuff in my action films will actually be much richer because i've pushed myself in that direction very much so tim and it, you're right it's the whole i learned this on that set and it's some uh, and this is the key thing here this is the this is the this is the parasocial relationship 
we think we know these people. So that's a weird film for you. Fuck you, you don't know me. <laughs> you have no idea yeah. what my kind of film is. You've just seen what I've sold you. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's it. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you always work on this. You always work on these science fiction films. Yeah, not because I want to, because I'm good at it. Mm. And because that's where I am now and I can't get out of it. It's like, what would you love to do? I'd love to do this. Mm. And that's that illusion of control. If you get the chance to just step out your wheelhouse and sometimes you get there and go, oh, fuck, I can't do this. Mm. I've made a terrible mistake, but bollocks, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is a discussion you and I have had before, mm. Matt. I find it fascinating whenever, and it's something that is very rarely done, and I always find it almost the most interesting interviews with actors are when they are talking not about films that they have done, but films they really enjoy that they yeah. have nothing to do with. Because I find that so interesting. And also, and with directors as well, but directors tend to get a chance to do it a little bit more often. True. But it's very rare that you will have an interview with an actor where you just get, you just talk to them and you go, hey, talk about performances or films, not even necessarily from an acting point of view. It doesn't have to be like performances that really, yeah. what do you, that you really enjoy. What do you watch? What do you enjoy watching? What films have stuck with you recently? What films have stuck with you that you've seen from way back in the past? It, what makes, it's what makes stuff like the Criterion Channel uh, things where they get people into their big cupboard full of movies and yes, go, like, love that. hey, what, what, what ones would you like to pick out? Because it's, A, it's a bunch of really, really good but quite arty films that mm. you people aren't necessarily going to go on Jimmy Kimmel and talk about their love of Wong Kar Wai. You know, Armageddon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their love of Michael Bay. Um, but it's always really fascinating to see what people pick out there because it does it uh, does give you a little bit. And again, it is it's the illusion of parasocial insight and you know, is, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But it does break that somewhat because you can get you know you can get someone I don't know fucking you could have Ben Stiller go in there and you find out oh he l absolutely loves like German impressionist cinema mm. and it's like oh okay that kind of colors. What, how I think of him, you know, in a really oh, it makes makes the cable guy make more sense now or <laughs> yeah. something, you know, because well, yeah, you see the inspiration. Yeah, and you're right. When you said earlier about the whole like you, the failures and the things, the lessons you learn. Sometimes you're like, ah, oh, you know, worst fucking experience in this movie. Terrible time, hated it. But you know, who I met in the movie this actor. Yeah, and, that, oh, yeah. and then we went on to win an Oscar for whatever reason. Yeah, and yeah. you're right that, that that Criterion Collection thing is a really good example as well. I remember Barry Jenkins being in that cupboard. And just going, oh, <laughs> and he takes everything. I yeah. love it. But if you haven't watched these, by the way, listeners, they're they're done by the Criterion Channel, yeah. who obviously make these amazing special editions of of uh, DVDs, and they have essentially a cupboard that has at least one copy of everything that mm -hmm. they've ever made in it, and they get directors and actors, and sometimes it's screenwriters, sometimes yeah. it's yeah, uh, yeah. I think composers I've seen and stuff go in there, and they basically say to them, "Here's a bag, fill it." and take what you want because hmm. we make the dvds just tell us why you're picking stuff and they're it's always advertising yeah people go like i don't know you had that oh and so and so liked it i like them i'll check it yeah. out yeah it's, it's technically very cheap but it's really clever yeah um another great example of that by the way is you're, you're right asking people or getting an insight into what people's inspirations are hmm. and there's always the interview answer oh yes well i've been inspired by Truffaut and goddard fuck you even if you love Truffaut and goddard good on you mm -hmm. but what inspired you to watch this what do you watch in a regular downtime i was watching i think again scorsese saying i saw dairy girls the other day and i went yeah <laughs> brilliant 
Um, I, this I, makes I, complete sense for him. He's human like the rest yeah. of us. I find it fascinating. Uh, I love Bill Hader. Um, oh, yeah. As, yeah. A, as an actor and as a director, I think Barry is astonishing stuff. And um, he will often, t- he's he's A, he's a huge film nerd. Yeah. Like he came up wanting yeah. to be a director more than an actor and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But he's also a massive. A uh, true crime fan, and Ooh. will like watch that in his downtime, just like the trashiest stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching Barry, you can kind of see both of those energies of like high art yeah. film, yeah. and also people in Middle America getting stabbed, and and kind of those two <laughs> yeah. angles coming together. The the, the example I the, the non film example I would give people, mm. and this is very much ties into directors because once you have that control and you have that freedom to do stuff in terms of script and direction and who am I bringing in and whatever, blah, 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 blah. You see the, these are the things I like and I have enough power and control to uh, corral it all together. Um, and a very strange, almost precursor to this is Daniel Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. Daniel Radcliffe likes rap. Yeah. Um, he specifically likes um, uh, the alphabet. So uh, alphabet alim- uh, like Alicious. Yeah, My black delicious, exactly, yes, yeah. alphabetic aerobics. That's yes, exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. which is brilliant. But it's it's a, it's almost like this amazing vocal exercise. It gets faster, mm. faster, and he's rinse perfect at it. And it's like that's amazing. He does it on talk shows as like he a does, yeah. party trick. And I goes, what? It's like, well, you don't know what this guy listens to. And the same way, like segue into this other thing: who's your favorite artist? Who's your favorite musician? And then you say, what bands inspire you? What do you like listening to? And they're like, this, 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 and it's like, oh well, I love their music. I'll go listen to that. And you go, ah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, case in point, as a big uh, Nine Inch Nails fan, Reznor loves Bowie and Newman and <laughs> other bits and pieces. Newman! Newman! Um, but it's like, yeah, you can see it because the covers he does and the things he brings into his work, like, you can tell the influence is there. But you say, oh yeah, I love David Bowie. I love Nine Inch Nails. Like, that's not how that works. Yeah. Same way, like, oh, I love Truffaut. I love this director. No, you won't. <laughs> They don't emulate them, copy them. They take inspiration from the idea. It's like, what the fuck is Wes Anderson watching? Yeah. He's a man who has gone from, <laughs> I've got a bit of control to all the control. Mm. And I want to have a little model. It's like, you can't have that in your earlier films. Mm. You don't have the budget, the scope. Mm. Is it? That's ridiculous. Producer stamping it out, whatever it happens mm. to be. And over the years, it's like, give me my fucking models. Mm. Um, but what's he inspired by? Mm. And it tends to be stuff like, well, what, what are you watching? There's, nah, paintings more than anything else. It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm reading a lot. <laughs> that's it that's exactly it and the cult of personality forms into it like it's so it's so contradictory for us to say a director only has a certain amount of control and then say and Wes Anderson exists yeah because it's like you, there are films that have quirky Wes Anderson like scenarios mm-hmm. and conversational speeds and cadences mm-hmm. but they're not a Wes Anderson film same for a lot of these auteurs and personalities but again that's because you're trying to uh, Frankenstein cobble something together based on inspirations with that thing already existing in the universe rather than that person filling a gap that isn't currently being met. Mm. Um, which is why people say, oh, it's very much like you. It's like, uh, I, I think it's an old John Lennon, uh, uh, Paul McCartney Beatles quote. It's like, it doesn't sound like the Beatles. It's like, well, we are the Beatles. Ergo, this is the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, this doesn't feel like a Wes Anderson film. I made it, didn't I? And it's a fucking Wes Anderson film. Mm. It's like, it doesn't feel like it does yeah. You don't know what that means because I don't know what that means. Mm. So, yeah. I like those weird kind of quirky auteurs we talk about so often that have such a strong presence and so many of them, Anson being a good example, now just have like full control over stuff. Yeah. Mm. And or at least 
seem to have mm. by based on their how their movies are made and appear in yeah, yeah product. exactly yeah have a lot of creating control yeah. in that project and coming back to how we work with sequelizers you'll probably notice we don't often pick those people for our things mm. unless they're already tied to that project or there is a particular has kind a of real reason or message yeah. like mm. i don't think and listeners correct me if i'm wrong people have much better memories for this kind of stuff than i do none of us have picked wes anderson to direct any of our sequels no I don't think so. No, I don't think we ever have, actually. Because it would feel very like, "Mm, yeah, I'm doing, uh, I don't know, Glass, directed by Wes Anderson. Stargate 2 by Wes Anderson. (laughs) Sometimes we bring these personalities into franchise, and you're like, ooh, are they going to change it? It's like, I want them to. Mm. Oh, okay. Edgar Wright and MCU, right? You get those moments where the director just, their vision is so different to the studio's vision, and this happens, like, that's a, point i highlight because that's a well-known thing that happened and obviously we talk with three white guys on a movie podcast so we have to talk about the mcu every six seconds <laughs> that's the contractual obligation mm-hmm. and the fact that that's the one everyone knows but that shit happens all of the time behind mm. the scenes there are so many directors that are attached to projects that we just don't know about mm. and then they have an initial meeting and be like okay go away for two weeks come up with an idea come back to me here's the script we just bought whatever Rework it, see what you do. Come back mm. to me like, now we're not interested. Next. Yeah. Like, but we don't know that like, oh, there were 15 directors lined up and you went with director mm. number nine out of those 15. Yeah. The, that the, happens all the time. The only time you tend to know about that kind of stuff is either you have written that script and are aware that it is being shopped around <laughs> or it is a adaptation of something that you're interested in. So if you hear about like, like I can remember, and it's so weird to me that there is a Why the Last Man TV series out there, which I've never watched because that comic book was so important to me at a particular Mm -hmm. time in my Mm -hmm. life. And like every time it got like optioned, I was like, oh, what's going to happen with it now? And then eventually it like came out on TV and I was just like, "Eh, that's fine. I'll just read the comic book again if I want to know the story. I felt the exact same way. Yeah. But it's, it's that thing of unless you are following something very particularly and, and it, is an adaptation because you if it's just an original script or screenplay or whatever you want to know uh it's very unlikely you know those things do get announced in the trades as they call them the blacklist um, yeah yes. stuff like the blacklist but you have to be following stuff very closely and the, mm-hmm. the the most reason that people tend to hear about stuff is like oh yeah like you know so and so's comic books been optioned by legendary entertainment and yeah you're, oh okay and so oh this director's attra- uh, yeah. uh, potentially interested in directing and then you're like didn't that happen like five years ago? And it's like, yeah, it did. What what ever happened to that? It's like, no, it just it just didn't go anywhere. Shit fizzles out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think especially with things where you're taking those adaptations of well-known IPs, comic books has obviously been a big thing mm. outside of the MCU, other comic book adaptations and stuff mm. like that, where you will get an interview with the director or they've just done a film or whatever and they're just working on this project. And then you get the interview of like, so like, you know, money, no object, like any options, mm. what would be your dream project? Like, oh, man, I fucking love Why the Last Man when I was younger. Mm-hmm. That was like, that was my favorite comic book. Mm. I would love to do Why the Last Man. And then the headlines for the next two weeks are well-known director interested yeah. in Why the Last Man. <laughs> it's like, And then there's some studio exec or some probably like guy who does the filing being like, oh, fuck, <laughs> hold on. 
Hold on. Why the last man? That rings a bell. Yeah. Scroll through. Scroll through. Mm. Shit. Shit. Get his person on the phone. <laughs> Call him right now. Our We're option supposed... expires in three months. We, we lose the rights to this in six months. Shit. We need to call him right now. Um, Make something so we can keep the rights to it. Oh, God. <laughs> you know why that shit is dangerous? God. Everyone says it's Morbin time. <laughs> Quickly, everybody, put it back in the cinema. <laughs> Don't trust that shit. Put it back in cinema for the memes. Yeah, <laughs> it's like everyone says they're going to watch it. They're definitely going to turn yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, it's not were, ironic. It's, oh, they said they were all busy gosh, that day. Oh, yeah. oh okay. no, they were they were dressing in suits and going to Minions instead. What Fuck the hell? <laughs> yeah. So there's so much industry stuff, and it's all once a bidding war starts. All when it's already happened, and again. I, the conversations keep surfacing. I'm like, oh, did you hear? So-and-so's attached to it, Akira. And I was like, yeah, I've been hearing that since the fucking film came out. Yes, It's always going. At one mm. point, it was Taika Waititi. Thank fuck it's not. Yeah. No. But at one point, and we do this with sequelizers. Again, think, that's another example. He said, oh, yeah, I love Akira. I really enjoyed reading them. Yeah. I loved the movie back in the day. It was all good. Like, I have all Japanese cast links. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Isn't there going to be a... Yes, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever you're about brain, to say. My yes, brain was probably. like, there was going to be a Spike Lee Akira. And then so. my brain went, are you getting him mixed up with Spike Jones? And then my brain went, maybe it was both of them. Over the <laughs> I know, but they've been through all the Spikes. I know yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio was attached to starring at one point. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but th- this is the thing. And, and, and to sort of tie this all off for a second, let's talk about someone we love. Oh. John Carpenter. Oh. John Carpenter's career has been very much... I mean, since his early days of working <laughs> in school where he won an Oscar and the school said, we'll take the Oscar, said, motherfucker, that's my Oscar. <laughs> um, and he still can't have it. And, you know, they go something like Halloween on his own. It's very yeah. much the independent 70s system we talked about earlier. And he's always had that bullshitness. And then recently, fairly recently, he was interviewed. Someone said, oh, I love Escape from New York. I love it so much. Escape from LA. What happened? And he paused and says, fuck you. <laughs> and I'm like, we bitched about that fucking film on a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we didn't yeah. just say to his fucking face, yeah, yeah. what happened, buddy? We're like, you know, oh, these things all happened and it's interesting choices. It didn't work out. Oh, a bit of a yeah, weird yeah. choice there. Uh, yeah. Why Playing with technology that isn't really ready to go. There and... it is. We can see these things in hindsight and what we think, well, how do we change this? Um, so we, John Carpenter's made some huge missteps, but at every fucking stage, I can guarantee you when the project started up, Carpenter thought, I'm going to make a fucking great movie on this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is a great idea. And it's like, it's like I'm sitting down and thinking, another Snake Plissken movie. Mm. Oh, that'd be so good. What and I'm, go I'm going to make it a satire about my experiences in the filmmaking system mm. at the same time. It's going to be genius. I'm going to have the best time making it. The, uh, two words for it. you. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> yeah, maps to the stars, Eddie's. Well, come on, I was bothered by these guys. Yeah. And things you think, what do we love to do next? Okay, now hear me out. I'd love to do a cool action film in space. Okay. Okay. Yeah, support you. Yeah. On Mars, oh. with a bit of a sort of, you know, mystic a, a kind of a play on Native Americans in a strange way. It was about colonialism. It's like, okay, and they're like ghosts, and they're these haunted figures are possessing them, like a, a virus. So it's sort of element. Wow. Okay, sounds great. Yeah. What's it called? Ghost of Mars. Cool. Who's gonna get? There's a new upcoming action stuff from England called uh, Jason Statham. Oh, okay, sure. And um, it was a diver, apparently. Weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He's from um, North. Very smooth. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting Natasha Henstry as well. Oh, this is, what a great idea this is. And some, and then we're sitting here saying, no, we know it's terrible. Like, but if you're a studio here and they think, fuck, that sounds great. Yeah. Mm, let's fucking do this. On paper, it looks amazing. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and you never know in the eye of the storm what you're doing with it. So when we come up with our versions later, our, our examples, like here's a director, I can guarantee all of us were going, 
uh, as we go through the list of here's the good films, here's the bad films, whatever it happens to be, the only constants across these very disparate examples, and it's true for the entire industry, no one's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do this piece of shit. <laughs> um, because the three people we pick are all auteurs. They're the kind of personality where they want to make things of significance that pushes the industry forward in some way or has a story they want to tell. And things, unfortunately, just kind of fall apart. Sometimes ideas don't work out. There's, um, there's a very famous uh, book about screenwriting mm-hmm. by William Goldman, and it is called Nobody Knows Anything. I have it upstairs. Um, and that is essentially the essence of Hollywood, is that everybody is just guessing at what the next big thing is going to be, at what is going to be a success. Yep. You know, they are investing in these artistic products with the hope that they will be financial successes and that is such a roll of the dice absolutely and so you can never t- and it and and as like matt always says that any film gets made and gets makes it to the cinema is a small miracle and so really every director is bound to have missteps because the fact that any film gets made by any studio is kind of crazy it's a fucking miracle. Nicholas Ray said it in the 50s. Uh, nobody makes a film on their own. You have to rely on other people. And when you have other people, you have more liability and more things that can fall apart. And even if you don't, even if it's absolutely perfect, the public and the critics still have to like it. Otherwise it fails. Yeah. And there are things that people hate at the time, that audiences hate and that critics hate, uh, that we now look back at and go, classic. Hello, The Thing. <laughs> hello, hello, The Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption, prime, prime example. Yeah. Frank Darabont. Yeah. That is a director we rarely talk about. Mm. I think we've brought him up a couple of times, like the, the, the yeah. mist and things like that, and, and Green Mile mm. and things. But yeah, we may have brought him in on, I think, maybe one of our fixes in the past. Yeah, possibly. But he's the kind of personality you think, oh, yeah, he's, he's around. He's yeah. there. It's like, what's he made? Is it, I don't know the name. What's he done? Uh, some of the, gr- well, the greatest prison films ever made in yeah. Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption, um, and the greatest Stephen King adaptations. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Let's let's talk about some individual. Yes, indeed. The Age of Innocence, The Color of Money, Kun Freaking Dun. If you'd like to explore some missteps by one of America's greatest directors, why not check out our sponsor, Audible.com, library of thousands upon hours of audiobooks, podcasts, comedy specials, and more. You are so lucky and... they don't check these, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, why not use mm. our sponsorship to get a free copy of Martin Scorsese, A Journey, by Mary Pat Kelly. In time for Scorsese's 80th birthday and the release of Killers of the Flower Moon, a new edition of the seminal oral history tracing Scorsese's journey from young filmmaker to legend, featuring a foreword by Steven Spielberg. Oh, look at that. And you can get that brilliant book for free along with one month's membership to Audible simply by going to audibletrial.com slash sequel and getting a free book even if you don't carry on your membership. You get to keep that book. Plus, you get access to Audible's huge archives and constantly updating library of audiobooks and other audio content, including podcasts, which includes the sequelizers. Enjoy us. 
sign up for Audible. <laughs> Disrespect, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I'm just enjoy us. <laughs> <laughs> got me. <laughs> Good God it. Oh. Good film, Carol. Uh, so we're in the main season. We usually dive into a little bit of Ron Tomatoes, right, guys? We do. Yeah. yeah, we talk about the Tomatometer, the audience score, maybe a little bit, and. Mm-hmm. Dive around the sequels, the franchise we're talking about, we, or whatever. We poke some good-natured fun at it. We do indeed. Yes. We're going to do it for this episode as well. Whoa. I know. <laughs> so, each of us has picked a director. Matthew, you're going to talk about Ang Lee. That is correct. Timothy Matum, you're talking about Steven Soderbergh. Correct. And I am talking about Robert Zemeckis. There's a little teaser for the rest of the episode, essentially. It'll all start in a few minutes, obviously. However, mm-hmm. Let's play a little game, a little Ron Tomatoes game with you gentlemen. Hoo-ha! Since we're talking about, thank you, Al Pacino, star of the Game Awards. I love this thing. <laughs> Since we're talking about directors that have made both brilliant movies and terrible movies, uh-huh. let's have a little think about what might be their highest rated and lowest rated and what those scores might be for Back these particular oh. directors. Now, to clarify, I have had to... Be very specific with the films I am talking about. This does not include documentaries. This does not include oh, thing, yeah, yeah, things yeah. that are in preview screenings that aren't released yet and all this mm-hmm, kind of stuff mm-hmm. like that. There are some things that aren't rated, as we have discussed previously on the show. If it doesn't have enough reviews, it doesn't get a percentage, all that kind of stuff. Mm. I have not done any of that. So they are all director, directed by these people. Mm-hmm. It's not producers. I have also excluded where they are one of many directors on a particular project, which yep. is true for some of these guys. So None of this narrow- uh, Quentin Tarantino's forums. Exactly. I've narrowed it down a little bit. So should we start with my boy, Big Bobby Z, as he's known in the yeah. biz, Robert Zemeckis. First of all, for no points, what do you think is the highest rated film of Bob Z's career? On Rotten Tomatoes. So, uh, for those who don't know a lot of Zemeckis' career, mm. let's just run down some of his his mm. stuff. Please basically. do. Um, <laughs> let's go with his most recent fucking bastardization, being Pinocchio. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, he has done things including, uh, obviously, um, Back to the Future, obviously the trilogy, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, Contact. Then he gets into this whole uh, mocap era. So, again, mm. Polar Express, Beowulf. Um, Christmas Carol and other bits of pieces. So he's someone you've almost guaranteed seen tons of films of. Yes. Mm. So in other some words, of the most successful and influential iconic yeah. films mm. ever made. He, the footprint he has had on the industry has been a significant one. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say his highest is gonna be possibly a battle between Back to the Future and oh shit. I was gonna say Forrest Gump, mm. but then I'm like. No, <laughs> Castaway. Interesting. Okay, I'm gonna be. I'm just gonna say Castaway. Like I said, no points. We'll get to no, points no, no. when I'm it gonna comes say, to I'm numbers. Gonna, yeah, and I'm stuff. Castaway. Tim, what do you reckon? Yeah, it's tricky because obviously Gump won an Oscar, Certainly famously yeah. beat stuff like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, one Best Picture. But I, I, but the weird and it was, and it, and it would have been well received. But I'm. So get plenty of threes out of five, Tim. That's a big question. That's, that's how Rotten Tomatoes that's works. The kind of thing. Yeah, it's tricky. But then. Mm. I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm going to be a basic bitch. Back to the Future. Back to the Future is the correct answer. Yeah. Ah. So, what do we think Back to the Future has 
on the old tomatometer mm. from the critics. Would you like to know the number of critics? And give you a little. Yeah, I'm good. I'm Fair gonna enough. say 93. I'm gonna go higher. 96. 93 and 96. Interesting. Uh, for Zemeckis' lowest, what do you reckon it is? Any theories? Any ideas? Something recent. I think it'll be something recent too. I'm gonna take a stab. I'm gonna say, "Welcome to Marwin." Mm. I'm gonna say that. is weird. That's the reason I picked him because I yeah. hate that movie. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm thinking it's that fucking Pinocchio. <laughs> T- Tom Hanks is actually Tom Hanks is pretty good as Geppetto. I'm not gonna lie. He's kind of like, that's a good casting. He's not mm. Italian, but you know it's fine. Um, this is also a neat, like uh, um, Italian version in 2019 that I absolutely love of Pinocchio, which is really mm. good. And Guillermo del Toro's about that. yeah, yeah mm. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is fucking amazing and then this one comes out and you're like oh put that and, back in and the um who is it it's like Paulie Shaw Paulie Shaw <laughs> yeah there, there's always so many versions of fucking Pinocchio um so I think Pinocchio is the lowest Pinocchio is the lowest yeah what a piece of shit indeed speaking of it being a piece of shit Matthew what do you think you got on the old tomatometer for fucking 2022's Pinocchio beating out fucking Christmas Carol and Morgan the Marwen it's gotta be low 38 38 I'll say 28 and 28. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Over to one Angster for Lee, <laughs> director of such things that we've discussed before, such as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, mm-hmm. yeah. Hulk, mm-hmm. and other things, including yeah, Life of Pi and a few other bits. And yeah, pieces. the it, Ice Storm. Yes. Yeah, his, his career is a, 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 a smaller one than, than, um, mm. uh, than Zemeckis and got started a lot later. Mm. But yeah, big highs, big lows. We're here to talk about, boys. Big highs, big lows. I'm going to say highest is going to be Brokeback Mountain. Mm. I don't a... think that's a wise idea because it's a really polarizing because it's gay. Mm. It's a fucking good movie, though, isn't it? It's, it's fucking amazing. It's movie. a wonder, beautiful, heartbreaking movie. It's but I'm going to say it's Crouching Tiger. Mm. It is indeed Crouching Tiger, oh, yeah, Hidden fair, Dragon. Fair. Yeah. But. What is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? I mean, we technically we, know this yes. somewhere in our subconscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You totally remember this from a previous episode. Yeah. It might not have been in a previous season. It might, might ago, but yeah. for us, it's an eternity. Uh, well, I'll tell you when that episode came out. 94%. Oh, that episode came out uh, in the, on the 19th of January, 2021. So almost two years ago. Yeah. By the mm. time you're hearing this, about two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I want to revise my guess. 91%. 91%. Oh, 94. 94 from Mr. Stog. What's Angley's lowest, gentlemen? Again, just to double check, this is at time of recording. Yeah. Sometimes they change, they dig out old reviews, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It can be a bit wibbly-wobbly. Sometimes they assign the wrong review to the wrong film and then correct it, and that changes the percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bear with me on the, the specific numbers. I, I, have a, I have a pick in mind. I think it's between two films. I'm going to go... You go first. I believe I'm getting the name right. Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk. Mm. Okay. That is indeed the name of a movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird experiment with like 80 frames per second with a bunch of no names in it and also a couple of famous people who gave weird performances. Such as Kristen Stewart. And yeah. Chris mm. Tucker. And yep. I, yeah, it's I, got Chris fucking Tucker in it, hasn't ben it? Vin Diesel's in it as well. Yes. Called a complaining character called Shroom. Yeah. Or is it something else, Matthew? I think it's something else. I think it's something else solely because more people will have seen something else. Uh, I'm going to say... I'm going to say it's Hulk. Divisive Hulk. Yeah. 
It's Jiminy Man. Oh, Jiminy Man. Oh, yeah. Jiminy Man. It's Jiminy Man. Also, many frames also per second. too many yeah. frames per second. 120 or something. But, but it's yeah. got that bit with the bike where it like goes around and everybody went, ooh. And then, then the bike moves and it's like, oh. There's <laughs> CGI in that. I watched that film on the higher frame rate and the opening thing with this sniper on the, uh, as the train goes past, I was like, this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and this is the first two minutes. Again, we're talking about that. You go in with the best intentions of like, I'm going to try something new. Why are we doing I'm 24 go- frames? It's an old way of doing things. Like, mm. uh, the reason. Because you start to look like a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what do you think Gemini Man got on the old tomatometer? 19 or some shit. 90, you got, is that your number? Is that your 19. Number? 19. One nine. I think it'll get a little bit higher than that. I say, having not seen it. Uh, 33%. 33 from Tim Mayton. And last, coming over to your pick, Tim, mm. Mr. Soderbergh, what do you think is his highest rated on the tomato? For those who want to know, he's worked on a fuck ton of stuff. Hasn't yep. he just? Out of sight, Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, Contagion, Che Guevara filmed t- sequels to yep. um Magic Mike's yep. of the many types. Um, oh, God, yeah, of course. He's, he's done tons of things. Mm. I think it's probably. Aaron Brockovich. Ooh. I'm going to say it's one of those things with early career shit because he obviously tends to be like, what, what an amazing talent out of nowhere. Mm. I'm going to say Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm. Bang on the money, Mr. Stock. Oh, shit. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I think it's one of those examples of like, early enough, how many people have seen it? Brockovich was going out for big Oscars with... Yeah. Enough to, to Let's make... know. Again, the, this list, the unedited list... Mm. Um, Aaron Brockovich is like 10 or 12 places below that. Oh, wow. Oh, really? Yeah. Again, that, that's got to be... But he's also made a lot of very good films. That's very true. There you go. Yeah. So what do you think Sex, Lies and Videotape has on the old tomato? 91? Straight in with the oh, 91. No, 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 it's his highest, sorry, isn't it? It's highest, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's going to have a fucking 91. I'm going to say it's 100% fresh in that oh! case. I think, I think coming off of it, because it was an early Sundance hit. It was, was yeah. And yeah. I don't think there's going to be that many reviews for it, there we go. but I think they're all going to be good. I'm going to say 95%, and because it was the 90s, not enough sex or lies or videotapes. <laughs> it was 1989, so it wasn't the 90s. Oh, fuck, it was. <laughs> no, yes. According to Ron Tomatoes, it, it probably came, came out, out in 89 and then got uh, big yes. in the early no, 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My apologies, you're absolutely yeah. correct. I, I think, Jesus. Initial release was 1989. Sorry, yes, carry on. Uh, what was your number? Sorry, there, Matthew. Ninety-five. Ninety-five. Okay. Maybe that's one thing I'm thinking. <laughs> and what is Soderbergh's lowest? That's a hard one. Is it? This was the one I was like, oh, oh. Okay. Is it a oh. film that most people would have heard of? I had not heard of it because that's now. the that's the problem. Is he's got some early shit that people don't think of. That's true. Um, this isn't early. It's it's. I'm gonna go with what I remember. Mm. Uh, through reviewing over the years, mm. um, I think from 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 memory sake of things, I want it to be Ocean's Twelve or something. But I remember the Good German had the best intentions, and everyone fucking hated it. So I'm going to say the Good German. Okay, Tim, any thoughts? Any ideas? I, hmm. Again, I no, think it, no points, I'm, no pressure for this question. I'm going to go for something similar. Good intentions, mm-hmm. contra, not controversial, but critically divisive. Yeah. Solaris. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm. Well, Clooney getting rinsed for that in, <laughs> yeah. in, 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 yeah. in interviews. It is indeed the good German from 2006. Oh. Yeah. What do you think the percentage is for? This is a good German. I don't think it's going to be that low. Yeah, I don't think mm. it makes... It doesn't really make rational. Like 50%. Like German, um, nah, good German's not that good. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to say it's more like 40. 
Well, 41. 41. And did you say 50, Tim? I said bang on 50. Bang on the 50. Okay, let me do some of that tabulation. It's out of six, because three directors, two movies. Yep. Diddly, diddly, yeah, sure, all sure. that kind of stuff. We do have a winner. It's not three for three. Okay. With the lowest rated for Robert Zemeckis, Matthew, you went for 28% for Pinocchio. Tim, oh, you yes. said 38% for Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Matthew, you're 1% off Ooh. at 27% for Too damn high. Point. For Back to the Future, Tim, you said 96. Matthew said 93. Tim, you were 1% off oh. <laughs> at 97%. Nice. A, a point each. Gotta love that incest. In Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> People be... love all the Im- implied incest and racism in Pinocchio. I've found that this boy! <laughs> Why does the old man suddenly have a boy? I lied. I've done the maths wrong. We'll get to that in a moment. Oh, oh. shit. That's exciting. <laughs> I know. I was like, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Oh, my God. Fraud. Yeah. Turns out we have a bigger tax bill than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Soderbergh up next. I'm doing it in this order for a reason. Uh, sex lies and videotapes. Matthew said ninety-five. Tim said bang on a hundred. Mm-hmm. Matthew, you are one percent off. It's ninety-six. <laughs> what in the shit is going on? Um, with the lowest, you both were slightly too high. Not one percent off, unfortunately. For the good German, it is thirty-four percent. But that is a point to you as well. Hey, hey, um, interestingly, very interestingly. It's interestingly the way of Jack saying I didn't read it properly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I did the maths, and I was like. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, that is a thing. Uh, yeah. For Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Matthew said 94, Tim, you said 91. You both undershot at 97% for Crouching it's Tiger. A, God damn, it's a good film. It's a fucking it's masterpiece. We said that multiple times yeah. in the episode. We like talking this, over many episodes. Yeah. It may come up again very soon <laughs> in, in other episodes to come. And, interestingly enough, it is a draw for the lowest of Ang Lee's. It Ooh. is bang in the middle of your two picks. Oh, Timmy shit. said 33, Matthew said 19. It's 26%. <laughs> right in the middle. Jesus. Or Jiminy Man. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but How Ma- very appropriate for Jiminy Man. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, with one draw and two points, but with three points? I'm trying to do the maths. Yeah. I believe Matt won that one. Yeah, Matt did win. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. again, no stakes, no claims. Yeah, yeah. But also very cool and very interesting. And, yeah. and clearly indicating that very prominent directors who've all worked on really interesting mm. properties, high 90s. They were 97, 97, and 96 for their highest. Yeah. Yep. And then 27, 26, and 34. Yep. There you go. So, yeah, yeah. That kind of sums up this episode. <laughs> there you go. Matt, I believe we're coming to you first. Yeah, let's talk about Angley. Um, I'm going to literally just reel off Stuff. not everything because there's. Stuff. There's there's a truth that some of the earlier films, namely the first three films, Pushing Hands, Wedding Banquet, and Eat, Drink, um, Man, Woman, isn't exactly the stuff people need to know about. Some people are like, there's no missteps at that point. You're still finding your fucking footing. Yeah, I feel like Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was the one where people started taking notice of him. Very much so. He's he's still very much working, you know, um, in, in Taiwan at this point. Mm. And it's like, this guy's got some talent. This guy's going somewhere. And then he rocks up and does Sense and Sensibility. That's where the first misstep could happen. It's like, well, you know, oh, I'm just going to adapt this fucking Jane Austen novel. It's like, yep. you, the Taiwanese director, is going to go to England and say, yeah, fuck you, you racist. <laughs> it's like, what, with, with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet? Yes. What's wrong with you? Mm. 
I could do this. It's like the, the first English language film you directed. It's like, it doesn't matter if it is. I'll make it work. And he did. Mm-hmm. Then he goes off to America, does The Ice Storm, a great underrated movie. Then Ride with the Devil. Very interesting, not perfect, but a very unique take on like the Civil War sort of stuff. Yeah, neo-Western. Yeah, very interesting going on. And then um, does Crash and Take Hidden Dragon. A lot of Oscars. Mm. Deservedly so. Yeah. Yeah. And then we hit a wall. Mm-hmm. Big green wall we'll come back to in a second. Then Broke by Mountain. Beautiful, wonderful, yep. amazing, Incredible. romantic story. Then Lust Caution. Yeah. Uh, a film that gets him in a lot of trouble. Mm. <laughs> with with Chinese censors. We're not going to talk about um, taking Woodstock because, again, it's uh, essentially comedy drama, but also sort of, um, you know, I- is it more of a documentary kind of box of a failure? But it, it feels like a misstep. It's like, oh, you've come off this thing and done this now. That, almost more than films that... Because taking Woodstock's not bad. No, no. But tonally, it's so outside his yeah. normal stuff. Absolutely. And it feels like it was... I think that was a failure at the box office because they didn't know how to market it. Yeah. Rather than he made a bad movie. Yeah. Then he goes into Life of Pi, and I fucking love Life of Pi. Mm. I think he's done a great job with that. And then, you know, a studio goes bankrupt over it, or, yeah. or an animation studio because they didn't pay them properly. Not them, but, you know, industry issues. And then Billy Lynn's, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is a choice. <laughs> Again, as noted, not his lowest rated film. A weird screwball choice, but not like a complete disaster. Yeah. And then he makes Gemini Man just before the pandemic hits. Mm. And fuck me, I hate that film. <laughs> so the two films I'm going to talk about specifically is Hulk and Gemini Man because it's coming off some extreme interesting highs mm. and just completely falling your face and then recovering. So that's why like, yeah. it feels like a wobble, like a misstep. Mm. The, the very definition. It's like, I've just made um, an impact with my first three movies cool they're my first three english language movies and they're all been very well received mm. fantastic i've just made crashing tiger hidden dragon the pinnacle of my career at this point mm. great what you do next well now i've been stamped up by the studio in the way of this new um superhero yeah fad mm. uh, x-men got... was a success spider-man's coming out and yep. people are interested in Daredevil's that devil's around about that time if not the same yeah year. and it's like the hulk hulk i know the hulk mm. that's a name we can market <laughs> people movie. remember the show made er- all Eric the Banner. money he's basically got the name for it already yeah. Yeah. everything's fine it made all the money in the first week and then yeah. word got out yeah um ang lee's hulk um what a fascinating a film it yeah. really is i uh, okay it's not good thank i don't recommend it thank god for that man. i don't think it's a film i'm people like oh you know it's an underrated gem it's not i i will absolutely defend the director's cut of of ben affleck as daredevil for what it is. I'm like, yeah, fuck it. It's okay. Mm. It does what it needs to do. It's like a three it, out of five at best, but it does it. There's job. a reason that film has an Evanescence song in it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. Um, Hulk, however, is such a weird choice. But then you look back at the mm. career of what this man did. Like, is it? In, in today's, like, even then, it was a weird way to approach a superhero film and it was Mm. a really interesting thing and it's the kind of thing that not to get too into the weeds with it but if you look at al ewing's recent run on uh the book called immortal hulk Uh is very different to what ang lee does but it it is that similar kind of bold take on like okay what is hulk really about and ang lee really did try to like dig into that character and explore it from a very 
both I'm not I'm gonna treat I'm gonna dive into the visual tools of the comic book, but I'm also gonna treat the character incredibly seriously. Absolutely. And both of those things are so counter to what the current prevailing trends in comic book movies are. Definitely. Where it is they do still treat the characters seriously, but they also there's very little humor in that Hulk film. Almost to, almost none. none. Yeah. Um and there is very little visual style of the kind of innovation that Ang Lee is doing in your modern Marvel, for it's example. It's also early 2000s CGI, which means a lot of it looks like... A... The, the Hulk stuff, I felt, looked fine. Mm. A bit rubbery, but is what it was. Yeah. The dogs was where them went, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Um, and th- you're right, Tim. It's the, it's the very mature story of what kind of a person is this? Mm. Um, and how do they live their life? And it's not just the and, whole, you know, David and, Banner goes yeah. from place to place to place and his thumbs out at the end of the road at the end of the episode. Mm. It's like, no, what kind of fucking family would let this happen? What's the dysfunction that's here? Mm. What's the emotional story I can tell to connect with? Mm. And the comics already at that point had started to go into some, explore some of those areas. And like, we're getting to the, Planet Hulk at this point or getting towards uh, it? Probably a bit before it. But yeah, yeah. There's stuff like the, um, uh, Peter David run mm. uh, and people people like that before him who had gone into that idea of like uh, Bruce Banner's dad being abusive and stuff like that like that was extant in the comics like pe- that that had that was an area that was there to dive into but it was a lot darker than what ho- Hollywood wanted to Wasn't dive into Spider-Man yeah mm, yeah. yeah and and the other side of that is, is as Tim alluded to just now, the visual presentation. Mm. And again, directors coming in with a strong vision and saying, it's a comic book movie. But yeah, well, I'll show panels then. Yeah. So what do you mean? Well, when you hold a comic in your hands and you're reading, you read obviously the speech bubbles, you're led in a very specific way, but you can still see it all in one go. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to show you the things happening from different angles. Oh, <laughs> I, I feel uncomfortable. I, I, I can't focus on it. I was like, but if it had worked, and I think is we've seen it work with other films contemporarily. 15 years later, you get Spider Verse, right? And, there and, it, it is. and then it's like, oh, you have Biff Bam Pow, and suddenly Miles is falling through different yeah. versions. Suddenly there's like a pop art thing going on, and then a different thing over here. And yeah. oh, He's broken out of the panel, and his thoughts are being projected in little. Oh, they, they're doing like the speech bubble thing. It's yeah. from the comics. You see a bit of it. How in innovative! And you're like, hmm, yeah. yes, isn't it's, it? Isn't it just? Uh, yeah, I mean, you see bits of it kind of in Deadpool, bits of it in uh, yeah. Multiverse of Madness. You see it in live action stuff as well. And it's like She-Hulk. To She-Hulk keep on, to keep on the Hulk She-Hulk's theme. A, probably the best example <laughs> of this our film, um, and it does it rather well. Yeah. The frustration is that. Uh, in 2003, I don't know if it was the time wasn't ready or the um, audience wasn't ready. But more, I don't think it was anything to do with the director. I think the truth was it wasn't the right property to apply it to. Yeah, mm. The tone wasn't there. For me, the reason I don't like that film very much is exactly what you were talking about, Tim. I think it feels like two entirely separate films that are happening. There is the introspective, interesting banner stuff. Yeah. Also, a Hulk movie happening. He yeah. flings a tank. Like, he, he throws yeah. a tank and jumps about in a desert for a bit mm. and fights a helicopter. And cool, we're done. Like, okay. And then you and cut. It... You cut to Eric Banner taking himself incredibly fucking seriously. Mm. Like, 
You were a 15, 20, 10, 20 foot, 15 <laughs> foot, 25 foot, 40. Uh, you're a big green guy like eight yeah. seconds ago. And you're suddenly like, mm, well, what would my family think about that? Mm. I must brood in my lab for the next six minutes. And you're like, ah, yeah, I guess that could be a really interesting, as you were saying, Tim, an interesting exploration of that character, which we have seen in the comics. Again, mm. every comic book character has a million different origin stories and yeah. it's been pulled in basically mm. every imaginable direction at mm. this point but you can do really interesting things mm. with banner and with the, hulk the great comic book characters have that plasticity to them exactly that you can do yeah that. yeah yeah and i think you could do something like that i think you're totally right there matt that the time was probably not right mm. in that kind of weird spider-man x-men kind of era of superhero We're just comics. these things fucking seriously yeah right? yeah and yeah, for me, it just feels so such a film of two halves, and that's such a cliche well, thing to true. say. There's, there's a darkness to it that we're not ready for. So, for example, there's a bit where uh, I'm just saying Eric Banner, as in the actor, he's. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's a dream sequence bit. But is he's... he David or Bruce in that? Oh, I don't remember. I think he's Bruce. I think he's Bruce. He's Bruce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. just the TV DVD, show where he's David. TV Dave yeah. Banner, yeah. Um, and and he comes out of the shower wherever his window steamed up, and he yeah. wipes the window, and it's the Hulk. Yeah, yeah. and it is like. Oh, what a wonderful thing about duality and everything. Mm. Nope. It's a fucking horror film. Yep. Mm. It's, it's like, ah! Yeah. And in the cinema, that was quite terrifying. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a PG Hulk film. Or 12 <laughs> or maybe at the time, possibly. Yeah. But um, yeah, incredibly weird misstep. And But then he bounces back with Brokeback Mountain. Mm. I think the other problem with Hulk is that like you are exactly right. And it, it, it feels like a film of two halves. And then it tries to bring them together for yep. the finale, and, and it's incomprehensible. Yep. And nobody can tell what's happening, and yeah. it's too dark. Jellyfish. And it's a weird jellyfish. <laughs> and, and it is a jellyfish. What oh the my f- God. And what, I, what the fuck happens at the end of that film? Who the fuck knows? Nick Nolte jellyfish. Yeah. Nick, Nick Nolte turns into a cloud jellyfish yeah. that swallows a nuclear device, oh, maybe. What a sentence. And Jennifer Connelly's there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just very quickly to touch on Gemini Man because Oof. Life of Pi, 2012, comes out, wins Oscars, beautiful yeah. film, mm. uh, really, you know, Jan Martel's award winning book and things, blah, blah, blah. Uh, analysis of religion and blah, blah, all these kinds of things and survival. And then it's like, we're going to do uh, sidestepping um, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Mm. Gemini Man, next big fucking blockbuster, let's mm. fucking go. It's Will Smith and Will Smith and a young DH Will Smith. Mm. Let's go. It's Will Smith and Will Smith. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and there's a really strong emotional story in it, and like Clive Owen uh, taking this this clone boy basically, and um, uh, twist- who there? Clone boy? What day is it? <laughs> <laughs> Why it's Christmas Day, sir? Do a Will Smith impression for Why me. It's Gemini Day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, again, it's the whole. But why? But why are we doing this? Mm. You know, Will Smith and Will Smith. It's like, but why? It it definitely feels like for as strong a film as Life as Pi, Life of Pi is, that it became a moment when Ang Lee got a little bit too interested in the technical side of things. There it is. And won't that be a theme we revisit? Very what, what, for, what foreshadowing, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Matum. Yes, yeah. indeed. I think you're totally right. That, like you said, Matt, Life of Pi won a bunch of awards. It was visually breathtaking, all that kind of stuff. In a similar, I know I keep bringing up Avatar because Avatar 2 has just come out at the time of recording, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's making shit tons of money and all that kind it's of stuff. It's also still the highest grossing film of all the time. It has an impact. Yeah. Arguably. Yeah. No and and Life of Pi is 
a similar kind of thing where so many people obviously it has a much more interesting story and an actual message that you can convey and acting and stuff that Avatar doesn't. But I think you're totally right, Tim. I wonder if Ang Lee kind of got the like, oh, I could really push the boundaries on this. Mm. Like, I did it and I won a bunch of fucking Oscars. Let's yeah. let's fucking yeah. go. Technology is amazing these days. We can mm. like do what we like. Let's try, I don't know, like fucking 120 frames. Is that mm. a- that's a multiple of 24 that'll do yeah why not let's give it a go what could possibly go wrong like it would be fine every single visual effects artist going you want to do what well you know hang hang on hang on so we make these effects yes and we render and export these things yes and it has to be really detailed but it's 24 frames a second so we have like on the animating on every other frame or the half frame and uh, we can get away with stuff you know and hide certain mistakes what do you mean well Jack's going to turn his head really quickly so I don't have to worry about animating that bit because it's just a blur. He's piss. Uh, sure. And you want to do a hundred plus frames to what we're already doing? Yeah. You want me to do a hundred times more work <laughs> on what I'm doing? Yeah. Make Will Smith young. <laughs> <laughs> it's like motherfucker. Yeah. And to um, give and to give you some practice here, just uh, watch this film of uh, Chris Tucker and Steve Martin being. Weird at uh, a soldier. <laughs> did that help? I don't think that did anything. <laughs> We're never going to talk about this again. Um, yeah, so it, these are missteps. But it, again, I don't know what Ang Lee's working on at the minute. Mm. But it'd be interesting to see is this the start of a huge tumble? Oh my God, I've fallen flat on my face. Or is it a a, a, a misstep? Is it, a, is it a, an a, ebb and flow kind of thing? Absolutely. Because right? yeah. Gemini Man um, just about made its budget back, which means obviously it was a failure. Um, critically speaking, I think uh, it was uh, very. It was well, well, sorry. What am I talking about? We know what it was. It was twenty six percent Rotten Tomatoes. We talked about yeah, earlier. Yeah. Um. So it's his worst performing film, and a lot of it's like you know saying the choices made, the story's trite. It's all very bleh. It's very self congratulatory nonsense. Even though Will Smith's acting in it is quite good, and there's bits to commend. But about how's it. Will Smith in it? God yeah, go, got it. And Clive Owen plays his dad. Uh, just for your information, oh. Ang Lee is currently working on a film based around the third and final boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. I mean, sign me up. Uh, called Thriller in Manila. Yeah. Oh, see, that could be fucking amazing. Heck, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rumored that Ray Fisher will portray Ali. Ooh, could... See, this is what I mean. This is what I mean by the bounce back. It's like, oh, well, you know what? I tried this, but I worked with this producer. I did with this on this sort of thing. We learned some stuff. We tried the technology here, and I'm going to try this more of a heartfelt story. Strip away the tech stuff. I had to go through Gemini Man to get to this stage. Mm. Um, and we've, we've seen yeah. so many Ali versions over the years. Yeah. Speaking of Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But focusing on that particular era and that particular fight is a really interesting way of framing mm. it. That so instantly I was like, oh, hello, mm. I'm a boxing fan. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. You've caught my attention. Yeah. Again, Angley could be, do something really interesting with the visuals of it, of taking the technology of the time and how cameras are set up and all that kind of mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. and just throw that in the bin. And you can shoot it from all these incredible angles yeah. that were not possible 50 years ago mm-hmm. that are now possible so you can have this incredible unique look into this moment in sporting history that we've never seen before well this is really relevant because technically okay so obviously martin scorsese as we mentioned earlier kind of reinvented a lot of how boxing films were shot with yes. raging bull yep i just do the boxing 
Did the boxing. There's a, there was a actually punch people. A pre- <laughs> yeah, there's a preamble. I mean, Ryan Coogler did an amazing uh, couple of sequences, obviously with uh, Creed One. Oh, man, yeah. But the boxing in those movies Creed is incredible. Three is being directed by Michael B. Jordan. Indeed, and it's the first sports film to be directed entirely in IMAX cameras. Yes, by Michael B. Jordan, and they're doing a big. They were doing big show. And it's about his it. directorial debut as well. Absolutely. So it's like that could change things. Yeah. That could be interesting. Do you want me to kill any enthusiasm you had uh, for Thriller in Manila? No. Mm. The film will be sh- 3D, oh. shot at 120 frames per oh, second damn. in 4K. <laughs> I mean, 4K Our actors nice. in the ring will be matched with digital avatars oh, Tim. and single set edited. Tim, why did you... Why did you have to shit on my dream? <laughs> let me let me let me throw something additionally out here. Let me let me try. Let me try here. We know it didn't work last time, Ang. Come on, mate. <laughs> but that's mate, the point. Ang, Ang, I know you're listening. We did we don't need that many frames, dude. It's fine. We found forty eight was too many, thanks to Peter Jackson. Fucking hell yeah. I I wonder if this is the example where it does work because it's not an action piece where you know mm-hmm. he chases himself. It's when you watch sports on TV, it's in the highest frame rate you can get. That's true. I, w- I will say. A lot of this news is coming from oh, 2015, 2016, when Ooh. it was first announced. Okay. Uh, so, he might have, so, yeah. Who knows? Basically, we'll see. Yeah. Might have learned his lesson. Speaking of learning from failures and yeah. stuff, be like, yeah, I'll do that 120 frames. Oh, Gemini Man was. Mm-hmm. Maybe I won't. Fine. <laughs> um, who am I bouncing to next? Let's go to Jack. Yeah, since we've been talking about technology. technology. Seriously, great yeah. segue, yeah. So, as I mentioned, Mr. Bobby Z. Robert Zemeckis yeah. has made some of the most influential, critically acclaimed, award-winning films of all time. And also some of the weirdest-looking, creepy-plastic-faced, <laughs> uncanny valley motherfuckers you've ever seen on the big screen. He was so, so close <laughs> to doing a Yellow Submarine movie <laughs> yeah. with Peter Serafinowicz. Yeah. And it didn't happen because he... Basically, he went down a path for too fucking long and everyone said, you need to stop. Well, he starts off, speaking of the Beatles, I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Right? From the late 70s, by the way, if you thought like, oh yeah, he started with Back to the Future and stuff. Oh no, there's a few more bits, including fucking Romancing the Stone as well, back in 84, the year before Back to the Future. Oh, and then Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which we basically spent an entire episode talking about. and. When we did our live-action animation hybrid episode, if you haven't already listened to that, go back and listen, because it'll be much more detail than I'll give here. But so many people I've talked to, whether that's animators, filmmakers, just artists in general, and viewers of movies, still don't understand how some of those shots are made. Mm. It, at the time, it must have been so complicated and every, I, I, you know, again, we talked about it on the episode, but the behind mm. the scenes stuff of seeing Bob Hoskins hit his marks and cues to the milli, it feels like to the millisecond because he has to be looking exactly where Roger is and hit the thing and get hit by the thing and mm. react to the thing. Bang, bang, bang. Cause it's the fucking eighties mm. and we, can't and fuck this up. Fall off and that it, desk, and this needs to be over here. And, yeah. yeah, and it was before they were even doing the thing with like the tennis ball on a stick. There was he no just, tennis balls. This is why we do tennis balls. On yeah, the yeah. And, we, and the thing is, that changed his career. Yeah, because then he goes, that, "Oh, technology's fun." That is it. So, as much as I adore Roger Rabbit, and again, we basically did an entire episode mm. inspired by that film where we said, 
okay, we can't talk about Roger Rabbit because we'll just spend the whole episode talking about Roger <laughs> yeah. Rabbit. We have to talk about other examples of live action animation hybrid films. But if you haven't, go and listen to that and go and watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm. But you are totally right there. That is the moment. For want of a better phrase, to bring back some old sequelizers parlance, if you will. Oh. It's the moment where the rot set in. Oh, yeah. Because he went, ooh, I can do cool animation stuff and live action things. I could just replace people with cartoons, right? And everybody went, sure, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, Roger Rabbit is great. Keep it up, man. That's great. Do more of that. You're going to rest on that in about 15 years' time <laughs> when yeah. all your weird little children are played by Tom Hanks for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the fact that, much like James Cameron became, and was like, we don't see Cameron movies to see what he's going to say as a story. We see what he's going to do to change the industry. Yep. And Zemeckis was always about, I want to do this cool effect. I'll figure a story yes, around it. It's very much so. So, again, and we keep talking about Avatar, but it's relevant because. James Cameron is one of those directors that always wants to push himself from a technical level. He wants to do something where, like, he made Titanic basically because he loves diving mm. and dove down to the actual Titanic and apparently fell in love with water. And here we are 25 years later. With He's trespassing on a grave and fucked around and fell in love. It's like, <laughs> are you sure? Pretty much, pretty much. And... Zemeckis has said this many, many times before. Whenever he does a new big project, he wants to try something new. We've said this already on the episode, right? That's often where these mistakes come in or there's mm. that potential for that weird thing of like, ah, the world wasn't just ready for that yet or mm. technology wasn't ready for that yet. Mm. But Zemeckis and his team, because again, not to hold him as like the mm. pure figurehead of this stuff, but he, he's like inventing new ways of making movies. Even something that you wouldn't think of as like, oh yeah, that's not an animated thing. Contact. Mm. The opening shot of Contact. Everybody blows. Is like yeah. s seven minutes of CGI. Yeah. Mm. It's nothing but. It's, and it's it also got that mad shot where it like. The wormhole. Goes through, the, no, goes through the, the, mirror. the mirror. Oh, the, yes. The, the mirror, mirror shot. Shots, but people still go. How did you do understand. that? And it's yeah. not even. In a shot about alien, sorry, in a film about aliens that has literal wormholes. In yeah, it, spoiler yeah. alert. The thing that's interesting is, oh no, I need to get these Jody pills. A new you run upstairs and then you pan back slightly, and it's a reflection. No, no. How is the camera? No. Not <laughs> How is the camera not in the mirror? With but the... it tracked from the stairs and turned. It's like it's just a zoom in. How did you do this? And they they were literally inventing new mounts and rigs and like. Yeah basically invented the dolly cam that we know to this day mm. to do shit like that. The the shot where you move through the window and into the house and stuff, mm. basically never been done before. He's like, mm. fuck it, I'll give it a go. I've got some of the most talented people in the world working with me in this team, and I have the money and I have the drive to do this, and James Cameron is another perfect example of that, kind of paralleled. Yeah, It's this fascinating thing where it could have gone in so many different directions. And again, we talk about this so often on sequelizers with like, oh yeah, that, that sequel is, is so close to working. Mm. Maybe it just needs a couple of little tweaks and it'll be there and it won't be a bad sequel anymore. And there are a couple of moments in Zemeckis' career where you see like, oh yeah, I, well, I, we can't erase Roger Rabbit from history because that's mm. such an influential moment. It's such a brilliant movie. The but industry then, like, changes if you do that. Yes. Oh, but then it does lead to like Beowulf and stuff. And you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> If you don't do Beowulf and Polar Express, you don't get Rise of the Planet of the Apes. As stupid as that sounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you yeah. say, well, you know, because of Lord of the Rings. Right? 
Kind of. Exactly. But... Yeah. Yeah. It's mad. Yeah. There's a really great Patrick Willems who we've mentioned yep. many a time on this uh, podcast. He he did a video about Zemeckis and he goes back to his very early stuff like um, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is a film about a group of teenagers who all want to see the Beatles for various different reasons. And he talks about how even in that film, which is a very a pretty straightforward, like teen historical kind of comedy drama yep. type thing. Zemeckis has this approach to filmmaking where and he's writing that as well. You have this almost like clockmaker approach to it where he's got it's like five different characters i think is it's like an ensemble piece and they each have a story going on and then they all come together at the end at i think it's the ed sullivan like recording of the beatles in america kind of thing um and and the film very much kind of like it all all the plots lead there and it all clicks into place and it all fits together like cog teeth of cogs working (laughs) together and he brings that across then to his approach to, and he's very much a craftsman. Yes. You know, he is that I am, I am going to invent this technology. You know, I'm going to think about filmmaking in a really in-depth way and approach these problem. Think about, think about pro- filmmaking as a problem solving enterprise. And that's great from a certain point of view. But the thing is, you also have to tell a good story and you also that's have it. to, connect with people on an emotional level it can't just be problem solving and innovation mm-hmm. because if you if you want to do that that's great but you're not a director then you're maybe a cinematographer you're maybe a special effects supervisor yeah. you're not a director no and that's why you find he'll get to points where and i'm not trying to take this from jack too much how do i get around that then adaptations it is yeah <laughs> yep pretty much so to kind of come back around in uh somewhat chronological order. I mentioned Romancing Stone. We touched on I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is his first film. As you said, Tim, you also wrote it as well. Um, then we head through Romancing Stone is 84, Back to the Future 1 and 85, Roger Rabbit 88, then Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3 in 89 and 90, respectively. Yeah. Then Death Becomes Her in 1992. Obviously, Sorry. the Back to the Future's special effects films, 2 has all that different ages of the McFly yes. family. You have, you the, have two Michael J. Foxes on screen at the same time yeah, in the background. And the edit, and... Editing people into the film you already have. Yep. He's mm. also filming two films at the same time, which That's wasn't right, yeah. something like, it's obviously... Commonplace now. It's It's got more commonplace now, but back then was like extremely rare. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, Death Becomes Her in 1992. I still love that film. We, another special effects like people don't think of it that way because it's like oh it's Goldie Horn and it's yep. Bruce Willis doing something silly e- every Meryl scene Streep. has like either someone's in a fat suit or they have like mm. you know how do we get Meryl Streep to de-age on screen it's like we're yeah. not that old it's like mm. we're gonna make her look young it's like oh, okay and yeah, then yeah. also we're gonna blow a hole in like yeah. Goldie Horn's stomach and twist Meryl Streep's neck it's like wait 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 yeah. do what <laughs> genius then probably arguably the big one despite having Roger Rabbit and Back to the Future and stuff like that Forrest Gump in 1994, mm. winning Best Picture. So much CGI that you don't know it's there. Insane amount of CGI. Mm. Two things I obviously want to highlight in that film in particular. Again, I'm basically just sticking with the technology side of things because it's Robert Zemeckis' mm. career, basically. This yeah. is what defines him mm. so much, is putting Tom Hanks into historical footage mm. that basically had not been done at that scale before, mm. where it didn't look like just a bag of shit. And the fact that it's even vaguely convincing 
nearly 30 fucking years ago and it still looks pretty good now. Yeah. Like I watched some clips earlier this morning to just double check. Like I remember it looking pretty good. And I remember uh, this is a real thing that happened. I promise. (laughs) My mum is a big CSI fan Mm -hmm. and she was watching, I believe it's CSI New York with Gary Sinise. Sinise, Mm -hmm. And I was like, Fuck me, he has legs. <laughs> I'd only oh seen him as Lieutenant Dan. And yeah. I just assumed he's a good actor. Yeah, wow. Gary Sneeze, he's doing really well for himself. Like, yeah. Oh, he, ha- he does have legs. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, still he got great... new legs. Yeah. <laughs> he, did, he, did the, he did the tap with the metal legs. And I, and I yeah. literally had That's to. That's why you can go to space at Apollo 13. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait a minute. I've seen him in other stuff. Of course he has fucking legs. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that they did, essentially, you know, we talk about Del Toro and his mm-hmm. amazing blend of practical mm-hmm. and CGI and all that kind of stuff. The perfect example, Pan's Labyrinth and Pan himself, the fawn, has these backwards knees that goats yeah, have and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And it's actually the real actor's yeah. legs. Hello, hello, Duncan Jones. Um, with a, like a green sleeve over the top so you mm. can edit that out and then there's the actual practical mm. thing and it's like this weird combination of both there's the say Duncan Jones sorry I did Doug Jones isn't it? David Bowie's son the director Duncan yes. Jones yeah. <laughs> sorry do carry on your own. Sorry, there, yeah Doug Jones there's that shot in Forrest Gump where it's uh, Dan he's on the floor he's on the floor yes. with, with the and table uh, with the table and he swings <laughs> yeah. round and, and it swings his legs because around. it's like, it's if where his legs are would pass through the table, except the table is also CGI. <laughs> yeah, and so, but you see that in the cinema, and you just go, "Yeah, well, he's got, yeah, got no legs." And then you, legs. and then you think about it, and you go, "Well, wait, then how the fuck did he just do that?" And then, yeah, yeah. and then you see behind the scenes, and you go, "Of course, that's how they do it. The table didn't have a middle, yeah. and then they CGI'd it in afterwards." But at that time in cinema, that was just so. Because it feels like an organic moment you're taking in the story and you're not thinking, yeah. wait, how would you do that? It's like, we thought about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the problem is that we thought about it while working in Forrest Gump is like, yes, because the story is so, and yeah, it's complicated and problematic and we're not going through that. But yeah, it's, it's so much, it takes you on this fucking journey. Mm. You don't care. You just go, wow, I loved, I lived it. It was amazing. Yeah. Give it all the awards. It's when you go, and that's the point, everybody, mm. the table bit. It's like, now go back to when we didn't care. We cared about the people. Yeah, the Forrest Gump does that perfectly. It's like, oh, we're gonna have, we're gonna, we're gonna make John Lennon give, uh, you know, be inspired to write, you know, imagine yeah. something Forrest Gump said. Better animate his lips. It's like that sounds like a complicated thing to do with footage. <laughs> like we'll figure it out. Yeah, I mentioned Contact in 1997. One yep. of my favorites. Um, what Lies Beneath in 2000 and Castaway in 2000. There's an interesting story there. With, oh, how the fuck are we gonna do this? We need normal weight Tom Hanks and then skinny Tom Hanks mm. like so we film Tom Hanks and then we go away for 6 months he loses a bunch of weight and then we come back again mm. and it's skinny Tom Hanks like i mean do you do you want to sit around for 6 months bob no i'm going to go make another movie yeah, yeah. so what's Harrison Ford doing right now <laughs> <laughs> no so far are you busy <laughs> he then goes and makes because i don't know if it, there's this kind of like just an impatience to that from, from Robert Zemeckis' from side of things. Like, I can guarantee that's exactly Yeah, means. exactly. You want to crack on. You're like, cool. We need to wait for six months to give Tom Hanks a chance to actually, again, you could just do that and with CGI and all that kind of stuff, but it's actually committing to Hanks is going to go away and lose a bunch of weight and grow mm. a beard and all this crazy shit. And do you know what? I reckon that is the point where the wheel starts turning in his head of like, 
stupid actors' bodies can't keep up with my ideas. I, I love how this guy sounds, but not how he looks. Yeah. Yeah. That is exactly the reason why Polar Express exists. Yeah. Because oh, he saw what an amazing performer Tom Hanks was, but essentially did the whole the body is willing, but the flesh is weak kind of thing. Where it's like, <laughs> and he became a hellraiser. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I, mean, I love Tom Hanks. He could do anything. I mean, like he went and lost a bunch of weight, but what if he was an old man, a hobo, Father Christmas, and a child? Because <laughs> <laughs> And again, at that stage in your career, no one's going to say, the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. The <laughs> Shut up. I don't know if you guys noticed, the original plan for Polar Express was Tom Hanks plays everyone yeah all yeah. the kids all the fucking hot chocolate waiters all the fucking no. train drivers all the caribou the train. all the elves and gnomes and <laughs> the shit. mountains the mountains the train itself i mean tom hanks is a, is a treasure he could do it yeah tom hanks international treasure and man of mystery but, america's dead <laughs> but fuck me can you even imagine the the fact that he motion captures the main kid yeah, and then you're aware weird. of that and you're like Oh yeah, we talked about the gate of an old man. (laughs) It's like the Irishman, right? We we, back around the other way. Where it's like, oh yeah, they're old people made to look young, but they (laughs) they run like eighty year old men. Yeah, have little turkey necks and stuff. You're like, "Mm, that doesn't quite work. Nope. And there's so much of Hank's performance, like the the various like ghosts of Christmas past and future, and however you want to interpret Polar Express. Like, oh yeah, that's Tom Hanks's face. Oh, that's, there's Tom Hanks's face. <laughs> that's also Tom Hanks's face. That's weird. Yeah, it's he, almost like that. One of the best known actors in the world is recognizable. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? What's then next he, on the list. Uh, this is I would say the Dark Times, but the the Uncanny Valley, quite literally. The the trilogy of I'm going to do everything in CGI and fuck it. Maybe literally in some cases. Uh, yeah. Polar Express in 2004, Beowulf in 2007, and A Christmas Carol in 2009. I- I'm going to say something. I think the Polar Express is fine. I think for what it has achieved, it was all CGI stuff that at the time was genuinely quite interesting. Beowulf was at the start of the 3D wave, had a lot of novelty to it, did a different take on Beowulf. You know, we want this huge strapping seven foot Viking motherfucker. Mm. I want him to sound like Ray Winston. <laughs> also, so, can Angelina know? Jolie's tits be gold? Yes. It's not nudity. Yeah. If it's CGI. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not nudity. Sure. It's Marks and Spencers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, what do you want to do with this? So, I want to cast. Uh, again, uh, sorry, the, you know, so the CGI is like, well, it has to be this way. Because, you know, Ray Winston doesn't look like that. Ah, uh, fair play. I don't want to hear Angelina Jolie. Oh, is she going to look like a... No, 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 no. She's going to look like her. Okay, what about Anthony Hopkins? No, 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 no. Anthony Hopkins is going to look like him too. Will the... Also, John Malkovich is going to look like yeah. John Malkovich. <laughs> Poor Ray Winston. Is it just Ray Winston then? It's like, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Which one really cockney, famous Danish mythical hero? We're Geats! <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Weird. Geats via Lambeth. Weirdly um, enough, I went to the cinema to see that with my dad. And he fucking loved it. <laughs> I, I still maintain the score for Beowulf is fucking amazing. But there we go. And then Christmas Carol comes out and it's like, well, we need someone with a rubbery face then. <gasps> a Jim <laughs> Carrey. <laughs> who's, got the, who's done the Christmassy stuff with his rubbery face before? Yeah. The Grinch himself, Jim Carrey. I remember writing my review for Christmas Carol about how a Christmas Carol has been trodden over so many fucking times. Almost as many times as Pinocchio. That might never come up. Yeah. Um, and... um. 
actually, there's been so many more Christmas carols than Pinocchio. But the point is that because Zemeckis is driven by what can I do with this visually, this version of Christmas Carol has a chase sequence <laughs> yes, from a does. from a fucking uh, cursed horse and trap and horse <laughs> cart, which becomes surfing down the side of a building on an icicle. I'm like, what is this? It's like, well, you know, the, ch- the chase sequence scene. It's like, in a even the Muppets didn't do this, you motherfucker. <laughs> it worked okay when Spielberg did it in Tintin, but that's mm. a tonally different thing, and also it maybe didn't work okay. Yeah, I mean, I can see the effort made, but yeah, different film. Next up, 2012, Flight, fine. It's okay, actually. I don't yeah. mind Flight, mm. but that's another yeah. one where like, oh, he makes films again. So, yeah. Yes. This plane's upside down. Yeah. This is... <laughs> Hmm. That's the entire film. Too. That is that is the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> so the, it's it's almost more of the uh, it's the the yeah. fucking is it Clint Eastwood made the Sully film? Yes. Where yes. you watch the With plane land three different times. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like oh, fair. That is the thing that happened. That is yeah. the thing that happened. In the thing with the plane. Mm. Um. So yeah. After the trilogy of mad CGI uncanny valley bollocks, he then goes. Ah, oh, maybe I need to dial it back and do like. Human-based oh, dramas and told. stuff. Very much so. So, flight in 2012. We said plane goes upside down. Denzel Washington, etc. Yep. Uh, the walk, which is that high wire shot in 3D. See, I love the thing. documentary. Same. And I've Man also, on wire. Man I've, on wire, yeah. I've also heard people say that in the back half. I haven't seen the walk, but I've heard people say in the back half of it, it basically turns into a heist film, and it's actually quite good. Uh, it's not bad. Yeah, Joseph Gordon Levitt carries it very well. Um, also, I watched that film in 3D. Mm. The vertigo that kicks in that fucking thing. Oh, Jesus. Christ. I have not great times with no, heights. it's mm. nauseating. But I still maintain just watch the documentary. Yeah. Fucking amazing. Agreed. Also, they, they, Joseph Gordon Levitt has terrible hair in it. And a ropey French accent. Yeah. Indeed. And to cap off his weird trilogy of like human stuff. Uh, Allied in 2016, which is that weird rom-com yeah. set in the Ford. Uh, rom-com. Well, it's romantic, like... There's no comedy. There's no, there's there's no comedy, <laughs> that's true. Romantic war war romance. War, war yeah. Romance. yeah. Wom-rom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Wom-rom. Wom-rom. <laughs> um, I, I had hopes for that film. I thought it'd be all mm. right. But Marion Cotillard and Brad Pitt and it's like... Mm. And it's a, what if the woman you've, you know, formed your life with and had a child with Turns out she's a spy, and, and Brad is like, "This is absurd," and and I'm I'm almost insulted. But it's actually moments where it's really good and compelling drama, mm. and then other times you're like, yeah, "It's fine." Yep. And the frustration is the CGI stuff, the the stuff that we think is be good, is bland. Yep. You're like, ugh. Yep. I wonder if the spark had like died behind Bob's eyes at that point. Mate, it's like, how would you tell with his dead <laughs> fucking mocap eye? <laughs> it's under the eyes of Tom Hanks <laughs> <laughs> in some Jeepers Creepers style escapades. <laughs> uh, and then the last three films of Zemeckis' career already touched on one of them, the most recent. But mm-hmm. the reason I really picked out Zemeckis here, Welcome to Marwin in 2018. What the fuck? This is the weird hybrid of the two, almost weirdly enough, paralleling Ang Lee's Hulk, because mm-hmm. yeah, it's oh, it's based on this true story about this guy who was abused and stuff. It's like really serious, human-driven drama stuff that mm. really like is an exploration of the kind of 
trauma and stuff that humans go through and grief and all this kind of really powerful emotional stuff to cope with it all yeah and also dolls and stuff and you're like wait what what was that last <laughs> bit no don't worry, don't worry just i mean like more than half of the film is also like a weird little village full of dolls but don't mm. worry about that steve carell's here you're like mm. i mean yeah steve carell i guess he's in that mm. like again in that phase of his career going back to the every career has a narrative kind mm. of thing going through it like He's doing dramas and stuff right now, right? Mm. He'll be fine. He's also a doll, and everyone's a doll. Like, <sighs> it's just weird. We got all these sexy ladies to be sexy dolls. Yeah, it gets this weird thing, and it tries so hard to be this like hard-hitting emotional drama stuff, and I can't take any of the doll stuff seriously. And then the dolls start getting naked and murdering each other, and I'm like, am I supposed to take this seriously? I don't... It's the it's the Bruce ba- brooding Bruce Banner and weird Hulk shots like cutting and Hulk the two. poodles and then Hulk <laughs> poodles and it's like I don't know is this made for kids now because it's dolls because the first bit certainly feels like it is because yeah. it's all like all, all the it's stuff. a perfect Barbie land yeah. type thing and then and then the Nazi Nazi criminals show up and kick the shit out of Steve Carell yeah and it's like wait what. Who is this for? Where, again, why it's did a this... real story. Yeah. Which makes it more painful. Yeah. yeah. And there's an there's an already existing documentary about it that is meant to be incredibly good. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the main reasons, because I fucking can't... I, I don't hate that film. I just don't get it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just... It, it fell so flat for me. I was like, ugh. A friend of ours is a toy photographer, and... Uh... Isn't that whole scene? And a lot of people he knows in the movie industry went, the fuck is this? (laughs) Because, you know, the actual story behind it is tragic. And the coping mechanisms used to get, you know, over, well, not get over, but to cope literally with PTSD. Yeah. How do I I process it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then you get this, what'd be great if there's like a court scene and all the dolls are there and the Nazis are like, maybe don't do that. Yeah. Maybe, Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe just be a bit fucking classy. Because when it yeah. comes back around and goes back to humans at the end, I'm like, oh, this could have been this film the whole time. And just play it straight. Just play it straight. There, there could have been like a really powerful emotional thing, but yeah. nope. Mm. Especially yeah. the dolls don't look good. None of the CGI st- shots look like they're worth it. Exactly. It, it's, it's that weird kind of like, it's almost this aftershock echo from Polar Express and Beowulf and shit where he's like, so I'm I'm doing like emotional human drama stuff. I was really into weird looking CGI characters like ten <laughs> years ago. Maybe I just do both. Maybe audiences weren't ready. I'll bring it back. Maybe yeah. all of the dolls are played by Tom Hanks. Who knows? We'll find out. <laughs> um, and then 2020, just to wrap us up on uh, old Bob Zemeckis, Roald Dahl's The Witches in 2020. Not good. Not interesting. No, not good. One. Boring. Pointless movie. Again, adaptation. Not needed. Um, and the lowest rated, as we discussed in the Rotten Tomatoes section, 2022's Pinocchio. Fucking, the, just watch the trailer for it. And the fact Pinocchio looks like, you know, he's like, oh, it's a CGI version of that cartoon from the 1940 movie. Like, yeah, it looks crap. It doesn't. And then we got Del Toro's Pinocchio. <laughs> You're like, beautiful oh, cinema. That's what it's supposed yeah. to be like. And then it's the, because again, you know, Tom Hanks looks the part. And then God, you... it's Hanks again. I even forgot his yeah, fucking Hanks. And fucking Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, Jiminy Cricket. And he does actually Jim, he does a good Jiminy Cricket impression. And then they show you that fucking fish. And, <laughs> they do. 
And it's like, what did you take from the movies, America? Well, I've got to make it like the original Disney film for people to like it. Okay, well, what are you doing? Like, I want to get this fox, like almost like a, like a live action mocap kind of thing, but it's also played by Keegan Michael Key. Yeah, you're like, yeah. fine. And I want to fuck that fish. It's like, God damn, you got some <laughs> yeah. Cameron in you now, you fool. Um, yeah, terrible film. I'm glad it's like rinsed a piece. Oh, shitty. Yeah, and it's it's such a weird moment to have it come out basically around the same time as Del Toro's Pinocchio, oh. which is such a unique and interesting twist on that story. And again, mm. like you said, Matt, it's been done a billion times before. We've all seen fucking Pinocchio. And they're like, yeah, just, just do the Disney one, but worse. Like, yeah, we, we've seen that done a bunch of times. Mm. And I haven't watched the Del Toro, and I'm Uh-oh. sure it is beautiful. But fuck Pinocchio. Oh, I, I've never. No, no, no. The, the fish is what we're trying to fuck. <laughs> That's the sexy one. No, in that. Tim's but you're, right. you're not wrong. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. my downside of my review was basically like, the only thought I can give it is it's fucking Pinocchio. And I, don't, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't care anymore about Pinocchio. I've seen arguably the two best versions. I'm done. Yeah. But would you say just to to to, to cap it off entirely? Is there a path back for Zemeckis? Do you see him coming back and, you know, be, is he so far gone that it's been like when was it's the been last 15, time he 20 made years since he's made a good yeah. film? Let me just double check. Go back through that list and see. Is what, it Castaway? What was the last one? Uh, it must be might Castaway, be, right? Might it be Castaway. 2004, so that's only 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> that's the age around. of some of our listeners. Yeah, Castaway is... entire life. No, Castaway is 2000. That's 22 years ago. 23, if you're listening to this in January. Mm-hmm. Um... Polar Express was in 2004. I've uh, have Stockholm syndrome with Polar Express. <laughs> you, you've been beaten up because my because my wife Emma likes it, so I've now seen it for seven Christmases in a mm. row. Do you close your eyelids and have screen burn? Yes, very much. So. <laughs> it's like, oh, hello, Tom. Of, of <laughs> Everywhere I go, just it's like fucking being John Malkovich, yeah. but with uh, with Tom, Tom Hanks, yeah, digital to, Tom Hanks. That's what it was gonna be, Tim. <laughs> I, 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 Tits like, and all. You go through like this therapeutic weekend, and someone says, "Just close your eyes. Tell me what you see." Tom Hanks. So <laughs> oh, give it another minute. No, no, no. You don't understand. That's all I ever see when I close my eyes. Tom Hanks. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where I can't say hot chocolate without doing the hot chocolate. <laughs> The, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, apart from my Stockholm syndrome with, with Polar Express, his last good film was Castaway, which was almost not this century. So this century is a misstep. So yes, mm. exactly. Yeah, he's which also you, an old white man. He might not change. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, after making some of the most influential, impactful, and iconic films in the history of cinema. Mm. Hasn't done anything good in 22 years. But still getting big contracts. And still making big contracts yeah. and, yeah, doing a lot of stuff. Mm. From the interviews I've seen, and I, hello, it's me, I did a bit of research and stuff. Like, he seems like he's got his head switched on in many ways. Like, he's still engaged in the world of cinema. He was talking about, like, other directors he likes, other films he's enjoying mm, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Like, it's not like he's just shut himself off to the world and like, fuck it, I'm just going to do what I do. Mm. But... From a studio he, point of view, he gets the job done. Yeah. Until they told him stuff. Has he just settled into this, like, uh, yeah, I'll just keep making movies because that's what I do. He yeah. feels like the ideal kind of person to step back from actively directing and become almost like a mentor figure to a new mm. generation because surely he's working with a whole bunch of special effects people and creatives mm. who would love to be given a chance to direct stuff he needs to be a producer he needs he needs to be producing he yeah. needs to be cultivating talent he needs like a a netflix 
anthology series of Robert Zemeckis oh, pre- yeah. presents okay. where he directs a short and then a bunch of other people direct shorts. That's a really good point. And they do interesting creative stuff. That 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 feels like it would be ideal for him. Yeah, I I, I thoroughly agree. Just a, just a it's like when you know a singer gets older and they're like, oh, just sing the hits from when I was a kid. It's like, yeah, you can, but you have to change how you sing them. Mm. Your voice doesn't sound the same anymore, mate. Yeah. You have to evolve with it. You might you may need to do some duets. Very much so. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. Tim, I'll pass it over to you. Finish off with a bit of mm. Soderberg. Yes. So we mentioned during our brief pause in the middle to stretch our legs and visit the toilet and stuff. Matt Matt said, uh, of course, the other, uh, you know, the ways to avoid making, oh, being yeah, yeah. bogged down by missteps uh, is to, in Matt's words, do a Takeshi Mike and just make so many films that people forget. You don't have missteps if you're running. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, take four steps and fall on your face, I was going, what the fuck is wrong with you? If you run down the road and skid every now and again, people will go, oh shit, that guy's well, fast. Yeah, <laughs> still running. Bloody hell. Look at him go. <laughs> um, and he his clothes off? Oh, and in some ways, time. Steven Soderbergh is similar to that. Oh, definitely. Uh, a man who has retired, I think, about nine times yeah. at this point. His only retirement is the coffin, let's face it. Yeah. Um, he has made a lot of films. Uh, you're not going to list them all, are you? Too? I'm not going to list all Thank of them. Could be here all day. Yeah. Um. I'm. There's. There's a whole bunch. Uh. That I haven't seen, especially some of his more early pieces. Mm-hmm. Um. He obviously had a huge breakout with his first. I think it's his first proper feature. Um. Film, which was Sex Lies and Videotape, which yeah. was one of these early. It was right at the dawn of the Sundance era. Um. He'd done some music videos and stuff like that beforehand. Um. But that sold for like quite a significant amount, got a huge amount of buzz, launched the careers of of various people. He then did a bunch of other small stuff, putting out a film every couple of years. Um, And then he has a very, basically a quite amazing period of run of about four or five films. Late 90s, I think. Late 90s. He does Out of Sight, which was around the period of everybody doing... um, uh, Elmore Leonard adaptations. Yeah. Um, and it's probably the best of them. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm a quite a big LA confidential, but it's not a direct Leonard. So yeah. yeah. You carry. Yeah. Uh, the Limey. Underrated film. Underrated film. Terrence Stamp. So good. The, the, the iconic, you tell him I'm fucking coming. Oh, <laughs> oh, so, so good. good. Uh, Erin Brockovich. Yep. Traffic, which won him some Oscars. Traffic yep. is the one that was like, You've done it now. Yeah. You've succeeded everything. Yeah. Uh, and then Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> That's the whole, I've done the art piece. Yeah. Now I'm coming for the box office. Yeah. <laughs> then he has what uh, sort of, I would argue, is his first few stumbles. Oh, I agree. He has, uh, in 2002, he does Full Frontal, mm. which is this kind of Hollywood satire, feels very much in the mode of, Kind of a Woody Allen piece, um, really like, like celebrity, celebrity, and, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. And he also, in the same year, has his Solaris remake. Mm. Yeah, don't touch. Yeah, yeah I mean, oh, sorry, well, yeah, I was being that the idea that this has already been done a few times. Uh, sorry, Solaris being a novel, um, and Tarkovsky's being the most iconic. Mm. Some yeah. people don't like it. I get it. It's old seventies fucking Soviet science yep. fiction, mm. but. It's like saying, I'm remaking, I'm going to do an, an, a, another direct adaptation of 
and then you insert something that's one of the biggest things in, in, in what a lot of film critics mm. love. You go, oh, yeah, that's poking the bear, mate. Yeah. Doing 2001 Space Odyssey or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's like, why oh, would you do God. that? Yeah. yeah. I'm I, I'm going back to Mario Puzo's The Godfather to yes. adapt it. Leave it alone. Yeah. yeah. Um, And again, that, this kind of continues. We have Ocean's 12, which we obviously sequelized. We've sequelized, yeah. yes. Uh, some people love it, including your my lady wife. wife. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly well, not as strong as the original. Bloody that capoeira does my wife. Uh, she doesn't. He also has, as we've discovered, his worst performing Rotten Tomatoes film Indeed. around this point, The Good German. Yep. Which was this real throwback to uh, 30s, 40s melodramas shot using technology that only existed around that time. Very much an experimental piece. Not not well received, as we said. No. The lowest Rotten Tomatoes. But again, time back to that technology, right? It's yeah. trying something different. It's trying something new. When you hear that, and especially if you're, again, kind of like switched on into the mm. industry and paying attention to like news and stuff, you hear the announcement of that. You're like, okay, cool. Stephen Soderbergh's mm. doing something interesting. Made with technology from the time and all shot as if it was. Mm. Then you're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Mm. Okay. You know, you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention yeah, kind yeah. of moment. I'm like, wow, okay. Oh, it's not good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also get Ocean's 13 capping off the trilogy around this point. Better than 12. Better than 12, but not as... Yeah. Absolutely. But then he comes back with Che. Now, parts mm. one and two. Critically questionable, because Americans, obviously, with Shake Virus, you think about... Yeah. I really like I really like Che. Yeah. Great fucking yeah. Two, best two, uh, dual films. Benicio Del Toro's best performance by a significant margin, I would yeah. say. Mm. Traffic's also up there. To be fair. Traffic yeah. is also very good. No, yeah. it's it's one of those things. It was kind of he was born to play it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then he kind of gets into another groove again. Uh, he has the girlfriend experience, which is a weird film, but it's, you know it's it's Solid. interesting. Uh, the informant, which is oh, yeah. again another slightly strange one. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to that because I think that is the close. There's a film I want to discuss of his, mm-hmm. and I think the informant is the closest that he came to it before if that makes sense that weird energy yeah yeah i get you uh but around this time he also has contagion which obviously everyone was re-watching at the start of the I, pandemic i like contagion i loved it as a I film love, yeah. i thought oh i, I really celebrities it. and they were like oh my god because this the mm. huge ensemble cast means they can all die off really quickly and it's like, yeah. Blah, blah. yeah but yeah uh haywire which is another big ensemble oh, yeah. cast like to the time Gina Carano's a piece of shit. Yes, so, yeah. turns out, unfortunately, yeah. but yes. uh, amazing, some amazing female action fight sequences. Yeah. Sequences. Fight sequences are amazing. You yeah. also get Magic Mike around this point. Yeah. Oh, oh my god, what a great film! I like Magic Mike. Magic- no, no, I think XXL is better. It is Magic Mike as a franchise is so misunderstood. Oh, massively mm. so. It's like, oh, it's the Naked Man show. It's a like, drama about drugs stuff. and brotherly love. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, what? Like, yeah, yeah there's, there's, it's not about the dicks and the abs. Yeah. It turns out, well, it is, yeah. but it's not. And yeah. then the second one is about female empowerment, yep. while also being the best D and D film that's ever been made <laughs> so far. <laughs> Thanks, Joe Anginelli. <laughs> uh, side effects, which I really like, is a weird Ooh. kind of almost like a four piece thriller, very theatre play kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, behind the candelabra. Oh yeah, that shouldn't have been good. Shouldn't have been good, but is. Yeah, it's great. Amazing. Um, is that Matt Damon? That's Matt Damon. That Matt is Damon. Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Douglas, Matt Damon, and Rob yeah, Lowe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Almost, un- places almost a... all unrecognizable. Yeah. yeah. In some places, it's considered a TV film. I don't know how it's distributed yes. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, was one of these, like, it came out on HBO yes. first yeah. or something. And but still, it's just streaming. Yeah. Logan Lucky, 
which I think is an underrated, underrated film. Love Logan Lucky. I uh, yeah, so you, charming. Um, you I think originally recommended it to him, and then you backed it up, man. Yeah, I, was like, I need to go and watch Logan Lucky. Yeah, Channing Tatum's a delight. That one, I I'm pretty sure I know the Rotten Tomatoes on that one. Hmm. It's like ninety percent. It's really fucking yeah. high. And you're like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, it's the origin of Daniel Craig's southern accent. <laughs> yeah. Him changing the back of a car. Yeah. Cack like an idiot. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we get, uh, this is getting us right up to the modern day. Stuff like High Flying Bird, uh, Let Them All Talk, which was mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, kind of came out mid-pandemic. Yeah. He's had... He, because of the way he shoots things, he's managed to have quite a few bits come out that he shot during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, no Sudden Move, which was an interesting film, mm-hmm. uh, kind of gangster piece, and Kimmy, which is a real deals with the pandemic, which was yeah. uh, really mm-hmm. fascinating. And then in 2019, which yeah. was in between all of these, he had The Laundromat. Mm. Now, when I first saw the trailers for this, I got really excited. Same. Because same. I was the kind of person who really liked the big short. Same. Um, and I thought, oh, this is going to explore the Panama Papers. And it's Steven Soderbergh, who I love. Soderbergh doing Adam McKay-style thing about something yeah. that's culturally relevant and politically interesting. My God! Yeah. Give it to me! Got Meryl Streep in it. It's got Antonio Banderas. It's got Gary Oldman. Can't really go wrong. Oh, my God. And, you know, we talk about missteps and how directors sometimes find a groove and i think soderbergh has had uh, we've just gone through a lot of his work has had a pretty diverse range of what he's done there's been action in there there's been very adult dramas there's been period pieces there's been comedy there's been real populist stuff and real experimental stuff he's had a real mix one of the most common themes in it that runs through every film that he makes yeah is that you look at the characters and go, damn, they're cool. <laughs> and the informant, uh, the, the informant, which yeah. was the Matt Damon piece, yes, and the laundromat, are two of his films where you don't have that feeling. No, it's a weasel. Yeah. And the laundromat was so disappointing because the big short is a mixed bag of a film, but it explains the thing. It, it feels like it explains the things that it's trying to explain pretty well. Yes. In some ways, they're dumbed down explanations. I'm sure I'm not smart enough to know the true explanations of that stuff. I don't care about bonds. Yeah. Just tell me roughly how the economy's fucked. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Whereas, having watched the laundromat, I don't feel any particularly better informed about the Panama Papers stuff. Mm, yeah. There's so much passion behind it. Yeah. And, and, and the, if, I'm, if I may hijack you for a moment. Yeah, yeah but go for it. Meryl Streep. Mm. You're pulling out Meryl Streep. Yeah. You're going to be doing something. Yeah. Um, Not putting her in weird, maybe brown face. This is about what I was about to say. There's a, there's a thing where she plays um, <clears throat> uh, the role of a Panamanian lady. Um, and it... it, it, it I it's transformative, like, oh, look, this person this whole time you thought has just been this this, this random character in the background. Yeah. Actually turns out to be, she takes off the makeup and all the bits of yeah, yeah. it's Meryl Streep. Oh my yeah. god. I'm like, yeah, nah, that feels a little too on the edge. It's, I mean... And that put, it's that thing of, because she doesn't look like a regular person, 
So when that character is on the screen, you're not necessarily thinking that's Meryl Streep. Yeah. You're just thinking that's an odd looking person. <laughs> you know Johnny Depp's cameo in Twenty One Jump Street. Yes. Like I'm gonna break my chin. He's eating beans all the time. He's got this big giant nose and a huge yeah, beard. Yeah. He's like, who's that guy? Yeah. Well, it's Johnny Depp's recognizable. We had to hide him under everything. He's like. You wouldn't hire someone like that. They're too much of a distraction. Yeah. Extras are supposed to blend in the background. Yeah. You look at costumes on the film. The principal cast get these really embroidered, nice things, mm. flashy suits. The yeah. background staff have what the fuck they can have because it's yeah. cheaper that way. Mm. It's how it works. Yeah. You don't get someone who's going to draw you like, who the fuck is this? Meryl Streep. Yeah. Hiding. But then she takes off all the makeup and she gives this really interesting and important and passionate monologue, mm. which ends in a really nice, very, it's a very theater thing. Mm. Because she ends up accidentally, or it's entirely intentionally, standing in the pose of the Statue of Liberty. Mm. And it's meant to make you just go, oh, God, that hit me hard. Mm. Except all I'm going is, oh, what the fuck did I yeah. just watch? Because it, it, it tries to be this balance of where the big short worked mm -hmm. is that it is taking true events and... There is going to be some massaging to turn it into a narrative, but it is essentially taking true events and the people who lived through those experiences and following their story through those experiences. The laundromat basically takes these real events that happens and then tries to like graft on what I'm not sure if they are even real events or if they mm. just made up some scenarios to illustrate what it wants to illustrate. See, whereas the, Adam McKay has the, he did this advice he did with the big short. Mm. Kind of the, the, the Zemeckis thing about the teeth and the cogs. Mm. Um, the idea that all these things are, are whirling around separately, but they come back together. Yeah. Except in the big short, they don't need to come together. No. Because we're not talking about the, 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 the different cogs. We're talking about one cog and these are all different teeth on it. Yeah. They never interact with each other, really. Yeah. But they're all pulled by the same machine. Mm. Okay. Let's do it with the Panama Papers because there's so many webs of things to cover. Mm. Tell me how many spokes on this wheel. Okay. It's all shit. Yeah. And it doesn't really work. How so are we, we going to illustrate that? Well, here's a story about uh, an African guy whose wife finds out that he's cheating on her. It's like, okay, but what does that have to do with anything? anything? It's like, well, it doesn't really, but it ties back into this thing. And it's like, okay, but what thread am I supposed to be following? It's like, well, it's not really a thread. It's like a tapestry of things mm. that are all interconnected. It's like, well, then talk about that. Don't bring in this other story that you're then trying to get me to follow. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a. It worked in Sicario. It yeah. works in other bits. Because we go, what's yeah. this point? And it, point? And it feels. Like, oh shit, there it is. It feels because Soderbergh is such a talented and, and, and has such a breadth of storytelling talent. Yeah. In that he can do these complex films. He can do stuff like heists, which are incredibly intricate in how you have to yes. think about them and approach yeah. them and stuff like that. And it's like, how did you not? And, and, and like, you know, I've praised the big short. And I, and I think Adam McKay has made some good films, but like, He's not a filmmaker on Soderbergh's level. Not at all, not at all. I love having McKay, but I agree. And it's like, how did he manage to land that plane and you couldn't? And you did it in traffic. Yeah. How do I change the... How do I cover yeah. the drug effect? Yeah, how do I cover the, the war on drugs? Yeah. With tons of characters who never meet. Yeah. I was like, oh, that sounds too big for me. Nope, yeah. I've got it covered. Yeah. 
Do it with Panama Papers. Yeah. I can add a bit of humor there. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Turns out I fucked it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. Also, I'm going to have Gary Oldman doing a weird accent. It's like this. <laughs> and Antonio Banderas, who already has an accent, yeah. doing something. Yes. <laughs> um, Such a weird tonal misstep. Um, was that but, like Netflix? It was. It was yeah, a Netflix yeah, original. Yeah, fucking was. But, like we said, Soderbergh makes so many films <laughs> that it doesn't matter because by the time most people had seen The Laundromat, he'd already gone on and made No Sudden Move and Kimmy, mm-hmm. and they're both great. Yeah. So, yeah. he is someone who I definitely think will recover from any missteps you know people even think we went missteps. we went through his career and there were there was some stretches where it's like oh, i'm not sure what you're doing here but you're already on to the next idea so it doesn't mm. you know a good german oh that was okay that's he's the only one bit... we've actually sequelized in this list right yeah i believe yeah, so i think so that that that's a that's a, a stamp of shame on your forehead oh, yeah. yeah we did crouching tiger but that wasn't ang lee yeah yeah, yeah something yeah. yeah if yeah. we come knocking on your door and say hey you fucked up <laughs> we had to consider whether keeping you or not yeah, that's when you know you've, you know you've 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 you've, you've had a genuine misstep. Yeah, mm. but again, he might have gone. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was like years ago and X amount of films ago. Yeah, I don't care. I learned yeah. my lesson and moved on. And that's the thing. Even when you look at those periods where it's like, mm, I'm not sure what you're doing here. He's already he's bouncing around. Like Solaris is nothing like Full Frontal, mm, and Ocean's mm. Twelve is like neither of them, <laughs> and neither is the Good German. Yeah. And and so he's already he's moving so many different places and trying so many different ideas with each new film. Yeah. That when they don't work, it's not a mark against him because you're just that's how he works. Yeah. It's very different to what we were just talking about with Robert Zemeckis, right? Where he gets in a particular mode for a decade and it's yeah. like, Right. I'm doing adult drama for the next ten years. Yeah. Deal with that. Yeah, I've just finished my weird Uncanny Valley CGI thing for the mm. last 10 years, so yeah. uh, there's that to deal with, I suppose. Mm. And yeah, it's such an interesting... Mm. like the, the closest Soderbergh has to that is that he made three Oceans films. Yes. And he was making other stuff in between those <laughs> as well. It's mad. And then he yeah. came back and did another heist film with Logan Lucky, and yeah. it was completely different. Yeah. Yeah. So a director who definitely has his missteps... But again, he's moving so fast that you barely notice them. <laughs> Maybe that's a secret. We just need to keep moving super fast. Just make really... more films. The secret is always just make more content. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So we're moving to a daily schedule with sequelizers. We're doing seven, <laughs> seven episodes a week. And five will be shit, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time it comes around, no one will notice, so it'll be fine. Right, guys? We've never made a misstep. <laughs> Let that hang there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> They're just the words, season four. Yeah, <laughs> whisper across the the, yeah. gas, the gas leak. It's, it's, it's the whole thing that people say, like, "Well, there's this thing Matt went through for a long time. How long's that? Well, almost every pitch. What was that? Putting mech suits in everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt's in his mech suit phase for the last oh, 35 years or so. Like, yeah, we're fine. Highest grossing film of all time has tons of mech suits. Can't go wrong. You're not wrong. Man. Yeah, I'm not. You're not wrong. But you are wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong, but not about that. <laughs> You're you're wrong. You're just not incorrect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've gone wrong. That's different. <laughs> well, folks, if you think we've gone wrong somewhere, anywhere, do let us know what you think of any other directors who you think had big missteps. Any again, big impactful directors that have 
had a lasting legacy or made some incredible iconic films. David Fincher. And then made some shit. Alien 3, something we sequelized. Probably Fincher's worst, right? David Fincher doesn't have a bad film. Fair enough. Alien 3 is his worst. Yeah, even then, it's fine. Yeah, I know. I didn't say it was bad. I said it was True. Carry on, carry The one we've sequelized. So, he, yeah. he stumbled out of the gate and then went, fuck this, and ran through every <laughs> wall he could find. <laughs> and the patron saint of sequelizers, Mr. David Fincher. Yeah. yeah. Let us know on any social media you like. We are sequelizers on pretty much everything. If you'd like to basically have a live in real time discussion kind of thing on Discord, you can come and join the Discord by going to sequelizers.com, click the little Discord button, you get an invite there. There are now more than 200 of us having chats about films and other podcasts and music and wrestling and sports and parenting and politics and anything and everything, pretty much. There is a channel for all kinds of different things. And we essentially have it as like a little post-show discussion because people will react and basically do like live reactions mm. with spoiler tags. So you won't get spoiled just in case you can't listen to the episode as it comes out. We usually have like a phase one of that on the Friday when it comes out for the patrons. And then on again on the Tuesday when everybody else suddenly tunes in. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very interesting. People are full of questions and comments and different ideas. I'm sure we'll have a big discussion about all these different directors and oh, I can't believe you guys didn't mention this, and oh, what yeah, about this guy, yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Because that always happens, because these episodes are long enough already. Yeah, <laughs> and if if you run out of content, like we've done so much stuff, the Discord is also populated by a lot of other really good podcasts. Absolutely, yeah. Creators. We've got some of the guys from Modern Escapism, the guys from Unequal Sequel, M from Verbal Dioramas in there. Yeah. A lot of people we've crossed over with our live streams and stuff like that, and we've recommended on the show previously. Yeah, yeah. We've been on their show as well. Uh, most recently, we were on the Christmas special for do Dragon Stream of Scorched Sheep, which was a lot of fun mm -hmm. and chaotic bullshit that is D&D &D live streaming, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, highly recommend you go and check those guys out as well. If you want any more information about us, like I said, sequelizers.com is the hub to go to where you can find wherever you're listening to this. You can find all the other episodes, all of our merch, all that kind of stuff in one handy place. If you want to follow me, I am JLW Chambers on everything you could possibly need. Matthew, how about you? How can people follow you around the internet? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can also go to theredrighthand.co.uk to read my reviews. You can go to cheeseman.com to see the things that I make. You can also look for Sumo Drop Pod, as it is now January, uh, for the sumo wrestling podcast that I do. Uh, sumo, sumo Drop Pod on, on Twitter, obviously, if it's still alive. Uh, Tim. If I want to go through every single thing you'd ever put on the internet uh, to find all the dirty missteps, <laughs> is there a catalogue? <laughs> Indeed. I catalogue all my missteps on trivia underscore lad <laughs> on Twitter. Brilliant. Uh, which is where I will be until it is written off for tax purposes. Um, that's the best place to find me online, uh, other than our Discord server, which is full of lovely, lovely people. Indeed it is. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. Thank you for your support on Patreon. If you do support us on Patreon. If you can't, we understand cost of living crisis here in the UK. The world is still fucked. We've been saying that for two and a half years Since now. Since we started the podcast. Yeah, five years now. <laughs> yeah, God, that's all post-Brexit and Trump and stuff. So yeah, the world's been fucked for 120 years now, mm -hmm. something like that. Time is a flat circle, all that kind of jazz. Mm -hmm. If you can't contribute to the Patreon, like I said, we understand. 
please do share us with your friends, whether that's word of mouth, social media, and review us on your podcast app of choice that you're listening to on right now, whether that's Spotify, fucking Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. What's another one, Matthew? Acast? Yeah, sure, that one. I don't know. Is that a thing? That's a thing. Oh, there you go. Share us with your enemies. Especially your enemies. Hopefully not Stephen Soderbergh, Bob Zemeckis, or Angling. They're our enemies. Yeah. Just a bunch of guys. Ah. Thank you for listening, everybody. We will be back next week for more interseason fun and frivolity. But until then, have a lovely week. Ta da! I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>